Welcome to Camerashake Podcast, episode 81. And of course, as always, we have a great guest on the show today. But before we get there, be reminded that you can hop over to camerashakepodcast.com and join our Camerashake community right there. If you go to the top of the, uh, the website, hit join the community, join us there. That way, you can always stay in touch and get the latest news behind the scenes kind of stuff. Newsletters. We won't bombard you, but you know, it's cool. Do it. Do it for us. It'll help us a lot. Thank you very much. Anyway, that being said... Episode 81. Today, our special guest is one of the most multifaceted photographers I've ever seen. Uh, the YouTube educator, talk chat, podcast host, Olympus visionary, and the only food photographer I've ever known that has specialized in chicken. <laughs> Give it up for Mr. Joe Edelman. Joe, how are you? I'm great, guys. How are you? You really did your research. Very good. Hey, hey, what, you know, somebody mentions chicken, I'm game. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think chicken is game. Oh, no, true. Yeah, that's, that's also very true. But how, I mean, how did you specialize in chicken? I, mean, I have to ask that. It was literally a fluke. I mm -hmm. was doing a lot of commercial advertising work and the ad agency that I was dealing with called me on a Thursday afternoon and said, Hey, have you ever shot food? I'm like, no, but and they're like, well, do you think you could? And I'm like, uh, sure. And they're like, okay, we have this national chicken client that needs a set of pictures that are going to be on shelf liners. So like when you go into the, the grocery store, there would be these little advertising cards that would attach to the bottom of the shelf. And we need a set of pictures but we need them processed and deliverable by Monday. This course is back in the film days. This was on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And clearly didn't think it through. Got in my car, ran there, picked up their sketches and picked up two containers of frozen chicken nuggets because this was back in the, it's back in the mid 1980s. So chicken nuggets were a brand new thing. They were like a hot commodity, right? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> this sketch was like a party concept and they had, um, you know, like a party hat that you wear yeah. and it mm -hmm. was tipping over and the chicken nuggets were falling out of it into a bucket. Right. So this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, you know, dark ages. So I get home, I get back on the phone. I'm like, hey, are you going to like composite all this stuff together? Like, am I just taking separate? She's like, no, 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 we need it in one picture. I'm like, I'm an idiot for saying that I would do this because I'm not going to do this. So got into high gear. I ran out to um, like the five and dime, you know, odds and ends store and bought some kids construction paper in red and blue. And I went home and I crafted the party hat and I had some fishing line in the garage. I don't fish, but I had some fishing line. And so I took small paper clips. I mounted the uh, party hat from two strings, fishing line. I took small paper clips and stuck them into the chicken nuggets with fishing line attached, ran mm -hmm. the fishing line through the party hat so that they were hanging, and mm -hmm. then went and got a KFC fried chicken bucket, covered it in paper, and because you only saw the top edge of it, and then filled it with paper towels and a piece of cardboard and put chicken nuggets just on the top because this wasn't about like buying that container. It was just about having chicken. Uh, I think it was like getting ready for New Year's or one of the holidays. And so I did the image in one shot on 35 millimeter transparency film because that's all I shot at that point. And 
they loved it. They used it within like a week and a half. It was in supermarkets across the country. And then they came back and they said, hey, you want to do more? But there's a catch. I'm like, great. What more could you throw at me after that? And they're like, well, it's got to be four by five. And I've got another job, but I need you to shoot it tomorrow. I've got a food stylist lined up and everything. Or no, excuse me, not tomorrow, two days. So I'm like, well, yeah, okay. I'm figuring, okay, this is what it's going to pay. And they said they had more. So I live about an hour from New York, and this was back before stores like B&H and Adorama. The big store in New York back then was a store called Olden Cameras. So I literally got on a bus the next morning, went to New York, bought an entire 4x5 setup with a Polaroid back and film stock and everything, and came home and practiced for the evening with the 4x5 to figure out how it works because I had never used one. And then the next day, I shot my first set of four by five images with a food stylist. And one thing led to another. And I spent the best part of two years shooting like chicken salad and, you know, all kinds of. They would do these really, they were kind of fun to do. They would do these sketches where um, they would do like chicken lunch meats. But the designer had kind of rolled them and shaped them so that when you laid them out on a tray, it almost looked like a, a pizza. And so we did a whole lot of kind of these concept images that way. And it was, it was fascinating working with the food stylist. The food stylist, she was amazing. She would come in and we would do one shot per day. So she would, we'd start at like eight o'clock in the morning. She would get all her food organized. She had had the sketches already and had gone shopping. And she would prep the whole thing and bring it onto the set. I would set up the four by five, get everything dialed in, meter it, and do Polaroid tests. By the time I got the Polaroid tests where I wanted them and where they needed to be, the food was already looking not so good. So then she would basically take that plate, she would go back and redo the entire thing from scratch, bring it back onto the set, and we'd shoot three pieces of film. And that was wow. it, done. Wow. So it was like a whole day to shoot three pieces of film, one shot, uh, but it was fascinating work. And actually where it really helped my career a lot, it was super detail-oriented work. Mm. When you're doing shots like that and you're essentially shooting one shot, the, the three frames of film were basically just, you know, one stop over, one stop under. It was a bracket. That was it. So you're basically shooting one image when it's all said and done with. The details got to be immaculate. And, you know, these are going to go in magazine ads. They were going, some of them went on posters. Even a couple went on some billboards. So the details had to be perfect. And so you spent a lot of time looking really closely at the symmetry of some designs or just little bits of food that seemed out of place because maybe, you know, a little bacon chip was like sticking out from behind a roll of lunch meat and it just looked weird the way it was sticking out. So it was a good learning was this, experience. Was this the same uh, chicken company you were working for? Doing the company no various. longer exists now. At the time, it was a company called Longacre. They were bought out by a company that is still around called Tyson's Chickens. They merged. Oh. So I Tyson's. guess it was in the hmm. 1990s they merged. So, yeah, it was Tyson's. Uh, do, do you know why I know who Tyson's are? You like chicken? <laughs> no, I watched Super Size Me 2. <laughs> oh, there really. you go. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that, that, that's how I know about big chicken. <laughs> that's right. Well, well, yes, so it was... <laughs> It was in the very early days of, of Tyson's. They, they bought this company out. Yeah. Oh, what did wow. it feel like when you, the first time you saw your chicken on a billboard? <laughs> oh, it's cool. I mean, <laughs> what got me like ultimately hooked in photography was a byline. 
in a newspaper. So, you know, even for all the years that I've been doing it, I don't, I don't chase the bylines like I did when I was younger. When I was younger, it was all about a byline, you know, seeing the picture in print. I don't chase that like I used to, but it never gets old. I mean, sure, yeah. it, it absolutely never gets old seeing your image in print or seeing it on a billboard. Uh, just a few years ago, I had an image not long after I became an Olympus visionary that was shot with an Olympus camera that was on a billboard 48 feet wide by 14 feet tall. And mm. people were like, wait, a micro four thirds image on a billboard. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, photographers get foolishly set in their ways. Because, yeah, back in the day, that image would, if you walked up the billboard, that image would have been very blurry, would have looked horrible up close. But of course, you know, looking at it from 100 yards away on the highway, it looks great. Printing technology has changed dramatically. Hmm. That billboard shot with a micro four thirds image is tack sharp and there is no noise at all. Um, yeah. I have an article, I have a YouTube video, I have an article on my website where you can actually see close-up images of it, and you wouldn't know that it was shot on a small sensor. And and that's mm -hmm. in part credit to the, you know, capabilities of the small sensors, but also in big part credit to the printing technology that we have. Yeah, and yeah. I have this um, this conversation sometimes, so I, you know, um, I shot a billboard campaign um, uh, maybe probably three years ago now, and it was it was mm -hmm. shot on a on a 25 megapixel a 24 yep. megapixel Nikon D750. Absolutely yep. perfectly fine. No problem yep. at all. It looked great. But yep. every time, you know, um, every time I talk about this, it's like the questions are always the same. Like, oh, you know, did you use a high resolution camera for this? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you know? Do you, yep. you remember the days when people used to say like, you know, oh, six megapixels, that's all you ever need. Why would you ever well, want? <laughs> the, very, the very first digital billboard I ever shot hmm. was with a Nikon D1 in 2002. So that was a 2.5 megapixel camera, <laughs> uh, yeah. wow. which I can't even imagine. Like, how did we survive with 2.5 exactly, megapixels, yeah, right. right? But yeah, the billboard looked great. Uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it, it, it's such an overused phrase, but it's a factual phrase. You know, it's not the camera. I don't care what camera you're using. If you, you can use a smartphone today. Let's face it. Apple does billboards all over the United States, you know, done with, Apple iPhones. I'm sure they probably do them in the UK as well. Sure. If you are doing good photography, you can do whatever you want with these cameras. I mean, literally, it's it's about, you know, make sure that your image is in focus. Make sure that you've got really good exposure. Not correct exposure, because correct exposure is extremely subjective, right? So we, mm -hmm. we I, I think mm -hmm. we needed to lose that phrase. But it's got to be good exposure, meaning depending on what's in that file, you know, you need to have good highlight detail. You need to have good shadow detail, but it needs to be appropriate for the image and what you're trying to create. And if you've done that, there's really not much that you can't do with images today. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, it always comes down to intent, ultimately. You know, so, you know, exposure is a thing, it's a question of intent. Like, what was your intent? You know, did you, yeah. you know, was your intention to underexpose bar stop if, if that's what you intended to do? If that was, you know, if that's what your creative mind told you to do, then great. You know, that's, that's Absolutely. perfect. I always tell photographers, remember the why, you know, especially even before you critique another image. If you don't understand the why, it's really hard to give any kind of feedback or critique on an image because the why, like, why are you taking the picture? That drives every choice that's going to be made. Even, yeah. you know, since I'm known for shooting portraiture and all that kind of stuff, even shooting portraits, a business headshot hopefully is going to be lit and shot differently than... Uh, a portrait for a dating app. 
And sure. that should probably be lot, lit and shot differently than the type of portrait that would appear in a huge frame above the mantle of a fireplace, right? So um, to say that while there's, you know, a proper lighting style for portraiture or a proper kind of pose or anything like that, you can't really do that because it's all going to depend on why are you doing the shot. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, posing, yeah. you know, posing is another really... Um, a big issue when it comes to intent, because, you know, for instance, when you're shooting headshots, you mentioned headshots, like mm -hmm. you would, you know, you would shoot a nurse or a doctor, you would post them completely differently from, you know, a lawyer, Absolutely. for example, you know, yep. or, or a CEO of a company or something like that, because, because the intent behind the image is, com it's a completely different one. And, yep. uh, you know, um, and what the, you know, the, the sort of, um, what's the word, the kind of communication you want to create within the image is, is, a, is totally different. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, a nurse needs to be friendly and, you know. Um, yep. But that's the right word to use as well, isn't it? What is that image supposed to be communicating yeah, well, that's, to the person? That's exactly looking at? Sure. Absolutely the right word. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I think part of the challenge is, and it's, it's a very human thing, but uh, especially new photographers. Um, so I, I don't want to say young because it's not an age thing. It could be somebody in their 50s that's just getting into photography. But I think new photographers would like to have the comfort and confidence of knowing that what they have done is correct. And yeah, so, you know, sure. when you're first starting out and you're, you know, you're trying to learn as much as you can about photography, it, you guys have been there. You, when you're learning everything you can about photography, when you've been kind of bit by the bug and, and you determine to go in that path, you're actually constantly getting slapped in the face with the reality that it's a lot more than just the camera. Right? <laughs> Especially if you're photographing people, it's the psychology of working with those people and the unknown of dealing with other human beings and all those things. So telling new photographers that, you know, it depends on the why, it depends on what you're trying to communicate. Unfortunately, that often frustrates them because yeah. they want that kind of clear cut answer because the clear cut answer makes it easier. Right. And unfortunately it's just really not that easy. Um, you know, that's part of what I enjoy so much about photography. There is this whole technical side that is steeped in physics, right? It's, it's you know, the physics of optics and, and light. And if you're one of those people that still shoots film, the physics of chemistry, you know, all those things. But then there's this whole, and that's rules. Those are the only rules in photography because you can't debate the physics, right? But then you have this whole other side that is the creativity side, and the best creativity comes from no rules. The best creativity comes from taking chances. The best creativity comes from surprising people and, yeah. and challenging people's thought processes and expectations. And that's what makes it so fun. But what you quickly learn is when you get into that creative side, it's not just about being born like some artsy-fartsy genius. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of honestly, intelligence, there's a lot of yeah. preparation that goes into really creating amazing work. Mm. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's what makes it fun because you're always, you're always learning. It's always a challenge. It's always different. Um, so and it's also, there's also a lot of failure. That's the other thing Absolutely. that comes with that. And it has to be, you know, yep. the, the other thing I always think like, you know, when, when I explain, um, or when I talk about portraiture in, in particular, you know, um, there's, there's a technical, and there's a creative side. And then the third part of that is, is that of being a communicator and, and possessing Absolutely. people's skills in order to, 
in order to uh, mold, you know, make that connection with your model or with your subject and then molding them into the place where you want them to be as a photographer. Mm -hmm. And that's really just a matter of communicating or communication between the photographer and, you know, and the subject. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, for me, that's always the, that's the really, really interesting part uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, shooting people, mm -hmm. basically. Um, there's, you know, there's certain challenges I set myself. There's a, there's a project um, I started a couple of years ago called Three Heads in a Row. And the, the idea there is, it's sort of a, it's almost like a little bit, it, they're kind of slightly comical, slightly, you know, larger than life, slightly farcical type of portraits. Um, but very often, you know, the people that are sitting for me um, are people I don't necessarily know or I may not ever have met before. And so the idea is, you know, I have to, in, in the shortest possible time, I have to build that connection to the degree where they trust me enough so they let go enough to give me these facial expressions that I'm after. And that's the challenge for me. The lighting isn't a challenge. I've done it many times and I know how to light this this thing, you know. Um, yep. The post-production is a challenge because, again, I've done it, done it lots of times. But... Uh, what, what is the challenge is actually just to build up that connection because not everyone, I think most people are going to be nervous in front of a camera sure. and under artificial lights in the first place. But then also when, you know, they're being asked to, to push their expressions towards the ridiculous, mm -hmm. that's even more of a, a hang up. So it's, you know, that is, that's what I, I love it sounds, about it. I, I like it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, there, there's a, mm. a lot of levels even to unpack in, in what you just talked about. For me, mm. big part of what really got me hooked on photography, I was a really shy kid, which I say that now and people are like, yeah, right. But I was. I, I was the kind of person <laughs> I'd cross the street to not have to say hello to somebody. Mm. But the camera kind of became, at first it became my shield. Like if I had the camera, I could talk to people. And people wanted to talk to me. So like I was mm. seen when I had a camera which was really cool. And I've always found people fascinated. So admittedly, I also kind of nerd out on that interaction in terms of, you know, let's face it, when you're, as a photographer, when you're doing that, and I do not mean this in any negative way towards any of us, but essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to manipulate the subject. Mm -hmm. We're trying to kind of, you know, push them into a spot where we're going to create that moment that we want. And Part of the challenge is, is we also, at the same time, want them to kind of be a willing collaborator with us because they really are. We can't take the picture without them, right? Yeah. So it, it's this interesting, you know, kind of tug of war. And to make it, you know, even more challenging, we've basically found this person, as you mentioned, we don't always know or we've only known for a few minutes. And we're basically asking them to put themselves in a vulnerable position in front of a camera, give up yeah. all control. And then, gosh, yeah, do something so that you look ridiculous, right? So yeah. it's that to me, though, that's fascinating in terms of building the skill set where I'm able to make a quick enough connection, mm. build enough trust, and then kind of prod people to that point where I'm going to get them out of their comfort zone and do mm. something. So, yeah, that sounds like a really fun project. You know, and to get them to like the whole experience as well afterwards. Yep. That's the other thing, you know? Absolutely. You know, I think. Um, it's probably one of the things that newer photographers don't focus on enough True. is that people, yes. that people aspect to get what you need. And it's a journey, right? Everyone goes on that sure. journey and eventually you realize, and you've, you also need to be comfortable enough with the technical side of it to be able to put your focus on what's the most important thing here. And that is getting that, sure. getting, getting the right shot and getting that, get the, the Absolutely. Um, model to do what you want them to do. Right. Yeah. And it Absolutely. is a journey. And it, you know, I was, I was thinking about this when you were talking about this, about creatives a, a minute ago, Joe, 
was that that is a creative, it's all creatives. That's not just photographers or, or videographers. It's all creatives what you describe. Kay and I have a background in music as well. And so we, we've personally been on that musical creative journey. And mm -hmm. so we can, you know, when you then get to the photography side of it, we've skipped a few steps because we've had, we know right. what those pitfalls are going to be and what to expect. Whereas if you're going on your first kind of creative journey, you don't know sure. that. And you, yep. you you start to learn and that's when those failures come in and you, it's very hard to take and to keep going. And oh, you know, if I think back to our musical days, how um, many failures have we probably well, had in our I, you time? Know, the, the best thing that, that a career in music has ever taught me is, you know, how to handle rejection. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's the best thing Absolutely. ever. Yeah. You know. yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's challenging because we go through school as kids, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we are taught that there's a right and wrong, you know, to every answer. Mm -hmm. We are taught to chase, you know, that A and not to get the F and fail. Mm -hmm. So... You know, at any age, even if you don't get into a creative endeavor until you're well into your 30s or 40s or 50s, mm. that whole idea of just take a chance and fail is a scary thing. It's a completely scary thing. Yeah. And then depending on what path you go, you know, you can also essentially kind of be bullied for that failure. Social media can be really tough sure. in that regard. Even joining a camera club can be really tough in that regard, especially if it's a camera club that's very much into competitions, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Let me tell you a story. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it, it's challenging, I, I think, for anybody. But once once you learn that it's okay, it's... It's really very freeing. And I, I will tell you, so you guys are young. So let me give you a little tip about what's to come since you're both, sounds like lifelong creatives so far. Hmm. One of the challenges that I struggle with, especially since my stuff is meant to be kind of outside the box in the first place, the older I get, the harder it is to create. Hmm. And hmm. it's simply because every time I go into a studio or every time I pick up a camera, I've got to get my brain past, been there, done that. Right. And it's like, okay, what haven't I done? You know, what what haven't I tried before? What outcome don't I already know is going to happen if I do this or if I do that? So for me, literally, it's probably, I'd probably say five, five or six years ago, you know, I, I kind of went through this dry spell of being really frustrated and being really stressed out. Is it is it time? Is it time to pack it in? And then of all, you know, ironic things, the... Olympus sponsorship falls into my lap at that point. And I'm like, now I feel like a fraud because like, I'm just, you know, the ideas aren't there. And finally, I just kind of woke up one day and said, you know, the only way I'm going to make this work is to go out and do things that I shouldn't do. And so I literally made it a policy to embrace failure. So now part of my my creative process, when I'm looking for these crazy ideas to do uh, in a studio, you know, with makeup and materials and all that kind of stuff is I have a mannequin. Her name is Lola, by the way. If you ever decide to work with a mannequin, it's extremely important. It's a rule. You have to name her. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Can, so, can I use um, you as a mannequin, Kay? And call well, you Layla? You know, I recently got a mannequin. Just a head, actually. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I go ahead. And uh, his name is Murphy. Okay, good. Murphy. So, as, long as, you, as long as you give it a name, that's good. <laughs> so... I will spend days if I can fit it in my schedule, but I will basically create with the mannequin. And my goal literally is 
what are things that I'm not supposed to be doing? What are things that are traditionally considered, don't do this if you're shooting a portrait or if you're working in a studio? And let me start there. And instead of just doing the easiest, obvious fix that I know from years of experience, let me find a different way. Let me find a different path. Because in the course of doing that, all of the stumbles and the test shots that I'm doing, I'm seeing things that I'm not used to seeing. Now, you know, ultimately, I'm seeing a lot of bad pictures, too. They're just of a mannequin. I don't care. But along the way, there's elements of those pictures that will catch my eyes. Like, ooh, look at that. What if I push that a little bit further? What if I do yeah. a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that? And it leads me to things that I otherwise, you know, wouldn't have tried. And and that's that's been a big part of it. One of the things that I really kind of through this process, but I was very lucky to stumble on after becoming an Olympus ambassador, they have a feature in their cameras. It's called live composite, which if you've never tried it, it's cool. I don't care what you shoot. The people that built the cameras intended that feature to really be for nighttime photography, star trails. Um, maybe more practical use of it would be the images that you see like a cityscape where you see the light trails from the headlights and taillights of the cars. Mm -hmm. So the way live composite works is basically, I usually work at a half second exposure. So I can set it up where it's gonna do half second exposures. And when I push the trigger, it's gonna record whatever scene is there, whatever exposure I set, but then it is going to keep shooting half second exposures until I turn it off. It'll do it for up to, I wanna say 30 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, usually I only go probably not even 30 seconds. But what's going to happen is each of the subsequent exposures, all the software is doing is looking for new light in the scene. So let's say I'm doing, uh, actually even, uh, lightning storm. Cityscape with a lightning storm, right? Normal cameras, if you do a time exposure, you've got to deal with the fact that the camera keeps collecting light the whole time, right? With live composite, I can set it up, expose for the scene as it is, the storm, the whole bit, start live composite, and then the only thing that's going to get added to that scene, and I could go for 15 minutes, is a lightning bolt. That's the only <laughs> thing that's going to get added to the scene. So this feature's in these cameras, and it's like, ah, it's cool, but I don't shoot that stuff. There's got to be a way that I could use it for my stuff. And finally, I realized... Oh, you know what? I could take an LED light, like a colored LED light, and I could start actually painting backgrounds into my shots with my portrait subject sitting there. So I use a flash. Flash fires records the subject, and then I run around like a crazy person behind the subject painting them. But then, of course, it became the challenge of kind of choreographing the light patterns to get, you know, things that I wanted. Hmm. And I've even done that. I've done it in trade shows on a stage. So in a trade show hall where you can't turn the lights off, the room's very bright and people are like blown away by the idea. Like, wait a minute, how are you doing a time exposure where you're light painting all at the same time and the lights are on? So stuff like that for me is, it, it's honestly how I kind of keep the creativity going, but you have to be okay with failing. And even when I do have a model, I'm going to do everything possible to get the shot that I plan. You know, obviously I do a lot of prep work, but I'm trying desperately in any shoot to leave myself a little bit of extra time to not use up every minute that I've got scheduled with what's planned, but to leave myself just a little bit of extra time so that I can push and prod and experiment 
with a real person. Sometimes you get lucky and an idea comes together. Other times, though, the failures give you new ideas and then you go back into the studio with the next model or the next shoot and you try that idea. So incredibly insightful. You know, it's, it's, some, it's not something that people need to wait until they've been doing this for decades. Oh, not at right? all. They, should be, they can do it today, do it right now. Yep. I mean, what a great way to well, approach that, it. That brings up a great point that you said. So I do a lot of mentoring. And one of the things that I run into with new photographers that I'm, I'll, I'll admit, I'm a little tough on this because I think sometimes everybody needs a little kick in the butt to kind of see the big picture. Yeah. New photographers will frequently say in that kind of situation, but, but I don't know what I don't know. So when I look at a picture, I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's good. I don't know what I could do better. I don't know how to do it better. And... I push back right away and say, look, that is the wimpiest damn excuse I've ever heard because that's just excuses. All you have to have is something that every human being has in spades. You have to have an opinion. That's all you have to have, right? And, you know, and, and admit, since I'm an old guy, I was kind of lucky in a way that I learned photography at a time where we didn't have the, and believe me, I love tech. I love the internet. I'm sitting here in front of three computer screens and three cameras, and I'm all about tech. But I learned photography at a time where there was no internet, there was no social media. So the overwhelming majority of my work, it had an audience of one, mm. me. So I had to be willing to look at my work. And, and fortunately, a personality thing with me, I get bored easily. And so even with my pictures, I can always look at my work, even my current work. I don't have a single image that I've ever done, no matter how proud of it that I am, that I can't look at and say, you know, if I could go back and do it tomorrow, I tweak this or change that or make some change to it. And I've, I've always done that. I've always looked at my work and said, but, but what if, what if that wasn't there? What if I had lit it, you know, this way, what if I had changed that? And I didn't always know the answer to the what if, but because I had an opinion that I, I like to use the phrase visual database um, in life, we have an experiential database that we build. It starts out like when you're little kids and your parents tell you, don't touch the stove, you'll get burned, but you touch the stove. Mm -hmm. And then you never touch it again intentionally because you know what that's like. Well, as photographers, as you think about it, whether you're paying attention or not, we build this kind of visual database, right? You go out and you photograph something for the first time and whether the pictures turn out good or bad, you now have this combination of the physical experience the emotional experience, which is really important in photography, and mm. the finished images, all the tech that you did, that's up here. So the whole reason for practice, the whole reason for experimenting, all of that is building that visual database. But in order to really keep driving it, all you, you don't have to know the answers to any of it. You just have to be willing to have an opinion. Because if you walk around asking other people, is this good? How can I make this better? You know, do you think I did this right? All you're doing, one, is getting opinions. And that's your fault, not their fault, because you're not offering them any context. So you're just asking them, hey, tell me what you think based on what I'm showing you. They don't know why you took the picture. They don't know anything about what your thought process was, what steps you took, what obstacles you faced, nothing. They don't even know what you were actually trying in your head to achieve when you did it, they just see that and they say, ah, well, you should have done this. Or you should have done that. Or you didn't use the rule of thirds. Why not? Mm -hmm. And then what you're doing is you're taking that information and you're trying to 
becomes something that you're not because you're trying then yeah. to shoot and to mm. shape your work to somebody else's standards. And then photography becomes mm. miserable. Mm -hmm. It's not enjoyable. You don't really want to learn and you're never going to do your best work that way. What you've just described is pretty much what, exactly what happens during a camera club uh, competition. That is true. And you know, that's one of the, um, it's one of the things um, that I've always thought um, when it comes to, to camera clubs. Although, you know, I'm, I'm a very social person. I love camera clubs in, in general. Mm -hmm. I'm a member of one and, you know, I like hanging out um, and talking shop and all that kind of stuff. And that's not good. Now, I, I have to guess, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. I have to guess you're one of the youngest members of your club. I am indeed, yeah. Not the yeah. youngest, but I am indeed, yeah. Well, I yeah. find it hard to believe. I know, because I'm considering... <laughs> <younger. There you laughs> um, but, um, no, this is true. But, you know, but the thing is, so, you know, this is like, this is what I always say. When people ask me about um, about camera clubs in general, I always say this, like, look, you know, you're in a room with people who've most likely been into photography for decades longer than you have. And mm -hmm. the accumulative expertise in this room is incredible. So if you, you know, if you don't know anything about, this is like a typical scenario, actually, you mm -hmm. know, I, I'm really probably, well, I'm a pretty terrible landscape photographer. I don't know anything about it. Um, I've never really pursued it. Um, it's one of the things that I, you know, I might focus on at some point, but if I have any questions about landscape photography, I just, I know that in my club, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who have been doing this for 40 years and they'll know everything there is to know about landscape photography. And the same thing would be true for macro photography and the same thing would be true for wildlife photography or whatever. And so that's, it's a really great source of, of information there that, you know, can, uh, you know, that like a learning environment that's, that can be really, really useful. Um, mm -hmm. The most... A uh, useful time for me is always the pop after the club session. Sure. Like, you know, when you go to the bar or the club after the, uh, when you go to the, the, the pop after the, the club meeting, that's when you get into conversations and you ask questions and stuff. What actually mm -hmm. happens during competition is exactly what you described a second ago, where, you know, somebody who's never seen your photos before, who has zero idea um, as to what your intent was when you took the picture, is now giving you a judgment and a score on... The what they think you should have done. Um, and I find that that's the part that I, I find quite hard to, to yes. sort of stomach. Because, you know, in, in the very beginning, years ago when I first joined, you know, I took part in a few competitions. Uh, and some, some images really well. Um, but there, was, uh, there were a number of, of uh, situations where I kind of thought, yeah, I'm listening to the judge and I'm like, but that's not what I intended to do at all. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, um, and you kind of go, well, that's, you know, I remember one time I did a, I put a, I put a shot in and it was, uh, it was a shot of Alcatraz Island mm -hmm. with the San Francisco skyline in the background. So I was on a boat, I was behind the island and I was shooting it. And, um, and you could see, um, I think it was like the wash house on it or something. It's like a ruin, a ruined mm -hmm. building basically in the, you know, um, and you could see this, the San Francisco skyline in the background. And so the judge went, oh yeah. And the, uh, the title was The Rock. That was the title of the photo, right? Right. And so the judge looks at it and he goes, it's black and white, you know? And the judge looked at it and he goes like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at some kind of island and some kind of town. I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what I'm looking at. It's like, and there's some kind of ruin on there. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. And he gave me like a really low score. And I'm like, it's called The Rock. I mean, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and plus, I mean, with camera club competitions, the rules have become... 
so restrictive in most cases that yeah. really the only way that you score points in a camera club competition is to create images, if I'm being honest, that are boring and very predictable because they have to meet, you know, this, this very strict set of rules. Mm -hmm. uh, and I will add, um, I hate, which I realize you had to do it for competition. Hmm. I hate images that have titles. <laughs> um, yeah. Here in the United States, I frequently get asked to judge competitions. I never get asked back. <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of that fact. I really, really am. But the problem with a title on a photograph is it sets expectations. Hmm. And But there's a whole other reality. And that's part of where these contests go wrong. And you've hmm. just described it. As photographers, when we create something, we have this experience. We see something. It motivates us. It energizes us. We study it. We hopefully, if it's people, we get to interact with it. We get to know them, et cetera. And then we sit in front of a computer now and we manipulate and we tweak and we fine tune. But then when we share that with the world, doesn't matter if we're sharing on social media. It doesn't matter if it's in a competition. If we just share it with a friend, no other human being is going to have the same experience with that mm -hmm. image as we did. It's just not going to be the case, right? So titles are one of those things that for me, they always annoy me because images frequently don't meet up with the title. And it's essentially telling me, the viewer, what I'm supposed to see and what I'm supposed to experience. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, let me enjoy it for what it is, but already you're not really giving me an opportunity to enjoy it for myself. Mm -hmm. You're telling me what I have to enjoy. So I'm, I'm not picking on you. That's uh, competitions require, you know, the title. You have to give it a But title, that's yeah. my frustration with that process is it, Absolutely. it frequently, and you know, you've done competition, so you've seen it. Some people think that they're being really cute and they do these really creative titles and then the title just confuses the hell out of you. It's like, what does that have to do with the picture? Yeah. And what it's some, you know, esoteric <laughs> reference to some poetry book. Like, sorry, I don't read poetry. I have no clue what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> no. yeah. I mean, on the, you know, on the, on the plus side, I think it's always important to, you know, for all of our listeners to, to um, have sort of a balanced view. Um, mm -hmm. it, there are some advantages when it comes to, um, you know, taking part in, in competitions like that. One is that it gets you out shooting. That's the thing that's always the mm -hmm. the yep. biggest thing, especially if you do it as a hobby, for example. Gives you reason to shoot. It gives right? you reason to shoot, you know, when you have a competition coming up. And also, especially with set subjects, um, mm -hmm. it might actually take you out of your comfort zone, you know, mm -hmm. when it's something very in particular that's required for this particular sure. competition or something. So it's a good thing. Um, and of course, listening to judges' um, comments, it can also be in itself a great learning experience. You don't have to agree with the judge at all times, and the judge isn't always right. That's yep. something to just bear in mind. You know? And it may also be that the feedback that they give you, you may not appreciate that feedback and what it really means and how you can apply it sure. for weeks, months, or even years to come. And you may look back at that feedback and go, "Absolutely, wow, that's exactly what it meant. Why didn't I? Why couldn't I see that? Then? Because, and we'll go back to that word again. Because you're still on that journey, a particular journey, and that's right. where you've got to at that point. Oh, sort of. oh, absolutely. I mean, that information becomes part of that database, you know, that mm. we carry. And I, I think I completely agree with you. I, I think anything that's going to make you pick up a camera, and anything that's going to get you to step outside the box, outstanding. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things. All good things in moderation. Um, sure. Certainly, for a lot of people of younger generations. Uh, competitions create a lot of anxiety 
they create a lot of stress. So certainly, you know, and I think that's one of the areas where camera clubs struggle because that's why I joked before about you being one of the youngest members. I know here in the United States, and I'm sure it's no different in the UK, um, a lot of camera clubs are simply aging out because they can't attract new members. And and every camera club talk that I do, I, I pivoted very early in the pandemic and started teaching online. And the thing that's been so cool is I've been doing, you know, presentations in places I'd never be able to do presentations because we can do them virtually. But I always ask, how are you doing with new members? And they always like, oh, well, you know, it's really hard. And so I've kind of made it my mission when I talk to camera clubs to try and point out to them, it's like the reason why you're not getting new members is you're not making it a safe place. And they're like, well, what do you mean? We welcome people. We're thrilled to have new people. It's like, yeah, you're thrilled to have new people if they do what you've been doing for decades, you know, if they prioritize the competitions, if they follow the rules. And, you know, I always joke, it's like, hey, don't take my word for it. I'm some guy you found on YouTube. But go and learn a little bit about millennials and younger and learn about what their priorities are. Learn about where they put their money and why they spend their money and what they want out of life. And you're going to realize you're doing some of those things like doing field trips and things like that, but Mm. you're doing it with all these set rules. You're doing it with, you know, maybe you're not forcing them to join or to enter the competition, but certainly the way most camera clubs are structured, the hot shots in the camera club, they're the ones that are getting the ribbons every month, you know? So it's, it's, (laughs) it's this, this hierarchical, you know, structure of like, yes, if you're going to be somebody in the club, you're in the camera, in the competition and you're winning the ribbons. It's like, you, you've got to take that pressure away and make it more experiential. And you've got to be willing to let people take pictures in ways and process them in ways that you've been taught not to do, that you don't like, but understand that it's okay that they like it. Yeah. You know, we one of the big Instagram trends, of course, is all the really low contrast muted colors where you put, you know, the big orange tint over your image, that whatever. I hate that crap. But you know what? I respect it. And and I think even as much as I'm not a fan of it and we see way too much of it, there are some people doing some incredibly brilliant work with it. Right? Yeah. And and so that's the thing, you know, because if if there weren't so many people that were interested in it, if it hadn't become a trend, these really, really brilliant images potentially would have never happened because they, right. they kind of came about as part of it. So it's all good at the end of the day. Just because yeah. it's there doesn't mean I have to do it. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean anybody should stop yeah. doing it. You know? you know, not ever having been a member of a camera club, um, it sounds like they just need to go back to thinking what a camera club is meant for. What's it there yes. to do? And I guess yeah, that's a question absolutely. to you both is, what is the intent of a camera club? Well, see, the thing, the funny thing is, um, when, so I only I joined a camera club very late. I only uh, I joined it maybe like four years, five years ago. When I moved to, um, I moved to where I live now in, in a place called Rickmansworth. Incidentally, another thing that ties us uh, together, Joe, because <laughs> you live in Pennsylvania, yes, and I live in the birthplace of William Penn. Ah, okay, very cool. Yeah, very so cool. uh, in fact, right. in fact, the local pub is called um, the the. Pennsylvania, I think, and uh, my yeah. my gym is called the William Penn Gym. <laughs> ah, <laughs> so, very cool. is, is it a founder of Pennsylvania? That's so. Uh, I'm guessing Ricky has uh, 
nothing else going for no, that, that's, that's basically, that's that is basically it. that's basically the only claim to fame it's a small town but hey okay you know so um so yeah anyway um uh i forgot what i was gonna say now uh camera we're talking about camera clubs in 10 oh right uh, okay so so i joined so when i moved to um to to rickmansworth um maybe because i got married i i didn't know anybody in the area and so my wife uh said like hey well you know why don't you join a local camera club because you know you can hang out with other nerds well, good. Don't have to talk to me about <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, stop talking to me about cameras. So you just find some other yeah. nerds. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like sounds like a reasonable idea. Okay, let's do that. And um, so I joined I joined a camera club, and of course I, I had really uh, no idea that there were even competitions. That competitions were even a thing in, in camera clubs. It didn't mm-hmm. occur to me. Um, and so you know, but I met a lot of like minded people, and it's actually fun, you know. And hey, again, you're hanging out, you know, having a few beers afterwards was always mm-hmm. was always appreciated um and then my i think at the time she was five or six my, my youngest daughter went one day she asked me she goes like daddy how come when you go to camera club you never take your camera with you and i'm like <laughs> you're right it makes sense what am i doing yeah. <laughs> you know and it's true of course you know yeah. i i always thought oh. um you know when i thought about camera clubs beforehand with zero experience off camera clubs I always thought it was the kind of place you go, you, you take your camera and you do things and you learn things and, you know, so it was just, uh, it it was my, it had to be my, my five-year-old daughter at the time who pointed out that it was, that she didn't understand how she's, I could go to camera club. She's got big things ahead. That's brilliant because she? she's right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's uh, also a, a photographer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to photograph dogs. That's what she does. Cool. So, Very yeah. Cool. So, anyway, camera clubs. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely worth it if you like to meet like-minded sure. people. Um, the competition thing is a bit of a, you know, if you're into it, great. I mean, a lot of people that I know, um, like the game aspect of it, you know, they like the mm-hmm. lead, the leaderboards yep. and all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, um, that's all good if that's what you sort of thing. Um, lots of people like that. If that's what gives them the, the kick to get out there and take photos. Yeah, it's, it's like fantasy football. That's great. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yep. uh, I've never understood why, but yeah. that's even the thing. So, so I'm hearing then that the intent of a camera club is to be around other like-minded photographers, um, learn mm-hmm. from them, gain experience from them, and give you almost give you reasons to get out there and shoot. I, you know, so I've, I've met the most broad strokes. It. Yeah, I mean, I've met the most amazing people. I remember. Um, my, so I'm technically speaking, I'm a third generation photographer. So my grandmother back cool. in the '30s um, graduated from whatever uh, photography apprenticeship or whatever it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she gave me, uh, well, eventually her first camera that she was given um, as a graduation uh, present, which was an Acfa Isolette barrel camera. Mm. Um, like it was, a, it was a 1938 camera, I think, um, that eventually ended up in my possession um, as an heirloom. And um, I remember actually taking it to, uh, to camera club and I was talking to, um, a guy called John was the, probably the oldest member. And he looks at me and he goes like, that's amazing. That's the first camera I ever I started shooting with. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Okay. But you can immediately see like the wealth of experience there. That's yeah. like, sure. you know, that's <clears throat> 70 years of, yep. of experience right there. I mean, it's, you, no matter where you are in your photographic journey, there is a thing or two you can learn yep. <laughs> from somebody who's good at experience. And I, I think that to one of the things to say that, that, that brings to mind, um, I was very fortunate growing up in meeting a lot of people 
uh, of really varying ages that were willing to to share their experiences and share their knowledge. Um, I, I think one of the areas that camera clubs fall short. So now, interestingly enough, I'm not actually blaming the camera club. I'm I'm blaming the people that kind of go and try it out and say, oh, it's not for me. Hmm. Um, a person like you're speaking of that, you know, has all that experience in them. Part of the responsibility lies on the mentee, not the mentor, mm -hmm. to ask the right questions. Um, it's not a mentor's job to essentially put together a course curriculum and teach you everything they know, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a mentor's job to take a sincere interest in you, as well as being willing to share their knowledge. Um, in order to make that circle really, really work, you know, it is about giving them context, uh, asking questions that are going to elicit the whys and the hows. It's always easy to ask kind of a broad question and get a simple answer. Frequently, those simple answers don't help. I learned this, fortunately, in my early years as a newspaper photographer. I spent a lot of time with writers. So, I, you know, I learned a lot about asking the questions that are really going to get people to talk and and you know, is the more context you give, you can get people like that to not only tell you their stories, which are always wonderful to hear. I mean, I'll admit, I, I nerd out on those stories, but to really be able to get inside their head with getting a better understanding of why did they do what they did? You know, how did they solve those problems? That's the real gold that lives yeah. in their heads with the experiences, you know, they've had. And, and the responsibility for that is it's really on the person asking the questions yeah. to, to get yeah. that information because usually people like that are thrilled to share it because they're thrilled that somebody has the interest. So they'll tell you everything. You yeah. just have to ask the right questions in yeah. the process. It, it took me the longest time to learn what you just said. But back in a previous life, I worked in corporate and I mm -hmm. was... Um, a mentee to, you know, to, to a mentor. And mm -hmm. I did not make the most of it because I didn't understand what you just described. I hadn't, right. it hadn't clocked in my you know, early mid twenties. It didn't, that, that penny hadn't dropped. Right. It was only a little later on when I became a mentor myself to other people that I suddenly realized how, what I expect from that mentee on, on me. I thought, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do the work for you. You, you right. want this, you ask me what you need to ask me. And we'll go right. from there. And but no one ever really explained it to me or they did. And I didn't understand whatever. I just wasn't there yeah. at that point. And it was only later on, it really kind of clicked. And I really understood what that all meant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it is explained enough in life. I, I was lucky in my situation. My, my father, he was a blue collar man. He worked in a factory all his life. He knew nothing about photography, but he was the kind of person that would if I got into something, he would do everything he could to enable it. He didn't have the money to buy me camera gear, things like that. So I got my first camera at 11. I was hooked right out of the box. I was somewhere between 12 and 13. And in the summers, him and I would take a walk in the evenings to a Friendly's ice cream store that was about a mile from our home. And we get ice cream cones and we walk back. And that was kind of like my dad time. On the way, there was a little uh, portrait and wedding photography studio that was in a uh, first floor of a house that had been remodeled. And my father would constantly say, you need to go in, introduce yourself, tell them that you're into photography, ask them if you can hang out and tell them you'll sweep the floors, like, you know, whatever. Okay. Remember I was a shy kid and I hadn't learned how the camera was going to give me all this access to people yet. 
So he'd tell me every time we go by to the point that it was just annoying. I'm like, yeah. Cause just the thought of it terrified me. Finally, one evening we're walking by and the door was open. And so my father's like, look, they're there. Come on, let's go. As if he's reluctantly going to go in with me. So I'm emboldened. It's like, cool. He's coming with me. So I charge down the path, step through the door. There's a young guy sitting behind the counter right inside. I step through the door and I'm one step in the door and I hear the door slam behind me. And I turn around and the door's closed and my father's not there. Like, I turn back around. The guy behind the counter, he's laughing hysterically because he's seen what's happened. He's like, can I help you? And so... Um, you know, I kind of explained my situation very oddly and he thought it was great. He's like, yeah, come back whenever you can. So, you know, I started going after school because it was like three minutes from where my, my school was, but him and his partner, his partner was considerably older. He was, he was a younger guy. He was in his mid twenties, but anytime I would ask a question, they wouldn't answer it. So if I would ask, you know, why did you put that there? Instead of over here, they would just look at me and say, well, why do you think we put it there? What do you think we were trying to accomplish? What do you think was the benefit for us putting it here? Supposed to there. And then after I would make a serious attempt at answering the question, they would go ahead and they would fill in a lot more information. Or if I was wrong, correct me, whichever. But basically what they proved to me is that if I put in the effort, I could actually figure out most of it myself. It was kind of like their approach was, look, it's not rocket science. Just pay attention and think, right? And but so they would they would prompt me to do a lot of problem solving. And then when I had exhausted that and they could see that I exhausted that, that's when they would give me a tremendous amount of information hmm. that, you know, really kind of backfilled everything that I was seeing and everything that I was thinking. So I I honestly I got very lucky. My my early mentors were great mentors in that sense that like you said, they they weren't going to do the work. I had to do the work. They were very willing to share their knowledge, but I had to work for it. And it's not that I had to kiss their butt or any of that kind of stuff, but I had to show that I was putting in the effort. And as long as I did, they taught me anything I wanted to know. And, and they were great. And, and you will remember the information from that given question 10 times longer than had they just given you the information up front. Well, it's because you were already thinking. You were already exactly. working it through. So you've already got a personal experience around it. Right. It didn't come easy. Exactly. Incidentally, what was your first camera, Joe? It is a Hanamex Practica Nova 1B. So it's, it's a 35 millimeter. Uh-oh, you guys actually... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we have a Practica. It's, it's, not, it's not the same model, but it is a Practica. I, was gonna say, I feel like mine, this was planned. Sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so see, your yours is definitely much newer because yours has the meter on the inside. Yes. This one, where you see the logo, that's mm. actually the reflected light meter yeah. on the outside mm. of the camera. Yeah. So yeah. the meter is not in the pentaprism yet. So yeah, I have, yeah, a, I have a, an, an old Olympus pen that actually has that. Is, you know, it's the same sort of principle. Yep. It's going to meet outside. Yeah. So I I paid um, I paid seventy five dollars for it. Mm -hmm. uh, my own money. I did it to spite my parents, literally. And um, when my mother passed away about 10 years ago now, cleaning out her house and, and taking care of everything, she had saved the receipt for the camera. 
So I actually <laughs> still have the original oh. purchase receipt oh, wow. for the camera. Wow. Uh, and the camera store that I bought it from is actually, amazingly, still in business. Oh, so they, still, they still exist. Yeah. So. Well, that's another rarity these days. That's incredible. <clears throat> to actually yeah. see cameras. Uh, indeed, well, right? it is. Yes, it's uh, especially, uh, and I'm sure it's not different there in the UK, but here in the States, mm. we've lost so many of the smaller, you know, retail chains. Mm. And it's kind of a good thing, bad thing, honestly. Mm. Um, bad thing because you hate to see them go. Sure. Good thing is that the ones that are remaining, the ones that have survived and are surviving, they were smart enough to realize that they needed to change their business models. And, you know, we talk about camera clubs and like-minded people and things like that. The, the camera, and I don't know about the UK, but here in the US, the camera stores that are not of the scale of B&H and Adorama, the small local camera stores, they're surviving because they have been smart enough to put huge emphasis on education and building community. So especially in the weekends, the better camera stores here in the U.S., you go and every weekend, workshops, speakers, events, mm -hmm. outings, photo walks. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are almost a camera club in and of themselves in the yeah. sense that they've got regular customers that show up for these events every single week. And it's, it's actually really great because they're building a family, you know, out of their, their clientele. They get to know their clientele really well, um, which kind of is how it was way back in the day when, when I got my first camera, the small town that I lived in, we had three camera stores and mm. they were all mom and pop shops, you know, and they were totally classic old school camera stores. You walked in and they pretty much looked like a bomb went off. But if you asked the owner, <laughs> where, you know, if they had this or they had that, they'd push a bunch of stuff out of the way in 10 seconds, they'd hand you what you were looking for. Like they knew where it was, but you're looking around yeah. like, how could you possibly find anything in this store? Um, so yeah, it, it was, uh, it was kind of a fun time, but you would, you would go to the camera stores and you would ask them questions and, um, they would answer, they would take time, they would talk to you. Um, so now it's just, it's that old concept, but it's obviously built out in a much more organized way on a, on a larger scale. And I mean, nicely changed their business model, right? That's, I mean, you do those workshops, you do those walks, you do things like that at the weekends or in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Where are all those people going to buy their buy anything from after that? They're only going to buy from that store, irrespective sure. of price, most of the time as well. Yeah, you know, that's where they're going to go because that's who they know. Who do they think of first? There's, you know, yeah. there's been many times yeah. so we, we have a we're lucky that we have um, a, a camera store that's been there since the early '80s. Um, mm -hmm. That's not too far from from my house. Um, SRS Microsystem. Oh, SRS. Yeah. Shout out right there. If you're listening, I know they're listening, so <laughs> a little shout out. Um, but, you know, the great thing about that is, you know, th there's been many occasions where, you know, I was looking for something, I don't know, let's say, uh, I was looking for a remote triggering system for speedlights, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, and that's like, you can trail websites and, you know, um, but when you actually, when you're in a store and you talk to another human being and, you know, they, yep. uh, you know, you have a conversation, actually... It's, it's much easier to uh, to form an opinion then, mm -hmm. you know, because sure. that person understands exactly what it is that you need rather than you're trying to piece something together out of watching like out of 10 different YouTube videos and like reading That's five it. blogs and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, and I, I remember gladly spending money in a store on many mm -hmm. occasions because it solved a problem, a very definitive yep. and maybe, you know, a very specific problem at the time as well. So, mm. 
And yeah, sure. I've always found it. Well, yeah, I mean, local camera stores—they're not doing business in volume. No. So their their success and their survival is your success, right? So you know they they are highly invested in you being able to do what you want to do, getting the right piece of equipment to do it. And the other bonus, like you mentioned, you know, being able to talk to somebody and get an opinion, most of, I don't know about there in the UK, but here in the US, most of your camera store employees, they are avid photographers. Oh, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with people that, you know, essentially they kind of understand your pain in terms yeah. of what problem you're trying to solve and, and what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, you can't get that off of a website. Yeah. You know, and certainly on the website you get convenience, but you, you're yeah. not getting that kind of information support. Yeah, and, yeah. and also, of course, you know, they, they'll give you a real life photographer's opinion on something. Like what you know, I remember um the, I remember the first time I bought a studio stroke, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, I was looking at different um, you know, websites and then I was watching videos at a time and whatever. Um and I needed I needed a strobe uh, because I was basically running uh, my headshot business on speed lights at a time. And mm -hmm. so it got to the point where um, where I thought like, okay, I need, you know, I need to invest into, um, you know, some bigger strobes and it's very easy to get suckered into this sort of thinking that you need to spend a lot of money on like one of the big brands, but that may that be pro photo or Broncolor or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you get sucked into that. And I remember like speaking to uh, one of the guys at SRS, you know, and he said to me, you know, yeah, you can, you can do that, but, or you can get one of these, you get one of these babies here. Yep. You know, <laughs> which is a super awesome straw. I mean, this is like honey the best badgers thing. are great. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's such a cool thing. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. break the bank. Um, it's really well made. Um, I've used it on so many, on so many shoots uh, in so many different situations, and that thing yep. is just bomb proof. Absolutely love it. Um, yep. So you know, another big shout out to Interfit. This video, by the way, is in in no or this podcast is in no way sponsored by any of these. <laughs> but we just yep. you know we just give them a shout out because yep. we love it. So yeah, Interfit's um, great stuff. I I use the honey badgers for quite a while. Yeah, it's it's great, isn't it? And it's yellow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like yellow. Yep. Right. yeah and I, I mean, I would probably still use them today. The only reason I stopped using them is I started traveling a ton. And right. I was teaching and things like that. And so, you know, I was traveling with, with four and five lights on a plane. Mm. They were a little too big. So that's when I switched over to Godox. Uh, mm. I was using the Godox 8200s because that way I had the option of a Fresnel head, bare bulb. Uh, yeah. Now I'm primarily leds all right over. yeah i mean, I, yeah. I agree you know when i when i travel uh, especially internationally what well, that was those were the days mm -hmm. back before the pandemic yeah. right into you know, world. into i yeah, no, to other countries can you imagine nope yeah um off the island oh, we just re the us just reopened didn't they oh yeah that's yeah. true that's yeah. right. oh, see that trip to new york might mm -hmm. actually come together yeah. at some point yeah, yeah. anyway sorry <laughs> but um <laughs> you know I, I mean i still travel predominantly with speed lights these days that's, yeah. you know so i still do a lot of that but um, you know, for the more kind of domestic market, I should say. Sure. Um, you know, I, I love those honey badgers there, uh, you know, my, um, my stu my shooting space, I have like a home studio, my, my shooting space, mm -hmm. my camera room is really quite small. Mm -hmm. And so I needed something uh, that had a different form factor that I wasn't, you know, like typically strobes are elongated. And so by right. default, they, you know, just require mm -hmm. a certain amount of space. And so mm -hmm. at the time I was looking for something that was just different, a little bit more compact. And that really reminded me very much of the old Alien Bees. So I kind of went, cubic? Yeah. Go for it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, was, you know, I, was really, um, I was really very positive surprised. Uh, you know, and for the investment, it's, uh, you know. It's a lot of light for the money, isn't it? Oh, gosh, yeah. Fantastic. Yep, yeah. absolutely. 
Cool. So you switched to LED. So tell me about that. What, what have you found uh, the advantages of using LEDs? Oh, my God. Switch? I could talk to you for the next three hours. So let me drill that down really small. Um, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes, so now that I'm an old guy, um, one of the things I'm learning is that when I was younger and older people were trying to give advice, even when it wasn't asked for, that I actually should have at least listened and paid attention because as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that sometimes the best answers for how to take the next step are in the past. So we talked about that photo studio that I walked into. Hmm. They did a lot of headshots and business portraits and things like that. And uh, this would have been 1972, somewhere between 72 and 73. Their lighting were these huge, like literally this big tungsten bulbs that were, I think, about 200 or 300 watts. And they put them in the clamp lights that have the silver reflectors like you get at a hardware store. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they needed to diffuse it, they had this diffusion material that they would basically tape on either end of that silver reflector. And that was it. There were no soft boxes. Soft boxes were, they existed. They were, they were like a new thing at that, and outrageously expensive. So that was their lighting. So basically they lit portraits with constant light. So it was WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. And mm. it was really harsh light. That was kind of the downside. But if you did it properly, you could make beautiful light. So, you know, the world evolves. We start to get what we used to call potato masher strobes. They were the old Honeywell strobes on the handle, you know, with the head. And then we started getting speed light flashes. And then, of course, studio strobes became smaller and more affordable. But even like the first studio strobes, if, if you were working with monolights, not like the power pack ones, like I worked with photogenics for a lot of years, you were still working with like uh, 1,250 watt second strobes, yeah. which... <clears throat> You don't, nobody really needs 1250 watt seconds unless you're going to go light the Statue of Liberty or something, right? I mean, that's just, for portraiture, that's an insane amount of light, but that's what you got. Uh, Even the early pro photos were all crazy powerful lights. Mm -hmm. So as lights evolved, it's gotten smaller, et cetera. But then what happens? In 2000, we get mirrorless cameras. And I think the photography industry as a whole is still kind of got their head in the sands because change means relearning change means rethinking so i'm not even talking about expense i'm just talking about we're at a point now with digital technology and mirrorless cameras WYSIWYG lighting simply makes sense so the barrier for leds for probably the last 10 years because led lights for portraiture not have been around easily 10 years some really nice lights The barrier has been, since they're nowhere near as powerful as a strobe, that would require raising the ISO. Any photographer that was around in the early 2000s still has PTSD about raising ISO because, you know, the minute you would get off your base ISO, like with a Nikon D1, forget it, right? That image was just useless. That's not the case now at all. But we still teach photographers, oh my God, don't raise your ISO. Don't raise your ISO. Go buy a 600 watt second strobe and overpower the sun at noon because you're too lazy to find good light outside and use a lower powered strobe. Just stick your person anywhere. And if you make the background dark, it's going to be cool. Okay. Right. So we've got these cameras that show us the image as we take it. 
not after we take it, as we take it. So you think about it, number one, with mirrorless cameras, any photographer that's consistently getting underexposed and overexposed images, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, why? <laughs> right? <laughs> that's no reason. So I'm just saying, uh, that's lack of practice. It's just lack mm -hmm. of practice, right? But then when we add in lighting, we're hanging on to these strobes where we still have to use the mirrorless camera then like it's a DSLR. Mm -hmm. We have to take the picture and then we have to preview it. Whereas if we're working with constant lighting, we're using the camera the way the camera is actually designed to be used with the EVF. LED lights have gotten a ton brighter. They're still not as powerful as strobes. I'm not even insinuating that. But the point is, the cameras have also gotten much better with higher ISOs. And gang, I'm not talking about like, you know, oh, you need to just raise your ISO to like 6,400 ISO. No. I'm talking about giving yourself an extra stop, maybe two stops over sure. your base ISO. There is no camera on the market today that can't handle that. Unless, of course, you want to put the image on your computer screen and blow it up to 800%, well, then yeah. you might see a little noise. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, you know, I have that sometimes <laughs> where somebody says, like, you, you, can't shoot a, you can't shoot a headshot with, like, an ISO 800. And I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's an email signature of 150 by 150 pixels. Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So... So, so yeah, and even you know, even if you're going to print it, you could still have a little bit of time. I mean, for years, yeah. and I'm, I mean, when I say years, I mean, a hundred years. The mm -hmm. photography industry survived with images that had texture in them. Sure, right. It's called yeah. grain, yeah. right? Yeah. And and mm -hmm. so that's why I say it's kind of like PTSD for digital photographers because when digital cameras hit the market, the noise it was bad. It was just bad, right? Yeah. It wasn't even grain. It was just bad. Yeah. But that's gone. I mean, that's simply gone. So now, you know, when you raise that ISO, unless you're going to the extremes, I mean, these cameras that work at like, you know, 120,000 ISO, okay, whatever. I, I, If you need that, you need that. And that's a whole other story. But for me, I'm never going to need that kind of an ISO. Mm -hmm. But for me to raise my ISO two or three stops above base ISO, I'm not sacrificing any quality whatsoever. Sure. And I'm able to use the camera the way it was designed for everything that I shoot. Plus now the LEDs, the powerful LEDs are small enough and light enough that I can travel with them as easily as I travel with like the Godox 8200 strobes. Yeah. And and I don't miss out. Yeah. So. You, do, do you remember? So a, a little while ago I moved to Canon, right? And so I've got, I, I use an R6, R6 for stills. Mm -hmm. And do you remember when I first got that? I sent you a quick image. I was just in my living room. <laughs> I just took a, a quick image of my uh, my my cat that was was sat sat down in the corner at ten thousand mm -hmm. ISO. Yeah. Yep. I sent you, and I think the words we basically used were: if 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 you unless you go basically pixel peep, you could barely tell. You exactly. could tell there's some it, the the ISO was higher than you would typically see. Right. Yeah. It was a you could see some noise there, but ten thousand? Right. Oh no. Right. Oh, no. It and looks great. Sure, it does. And let's face it, it's getting not just a little better, it's getting dramatically better with yeah. practically every iteration of cameras yeah. that we get now because obviously that's a big part of what manufacturers you know, are, are working to improve. And photographers still seem to have this attitude that, oh, they're never going to be able to do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. Well, then how do they do it with these things? Right. You can do well, it. Right, yeah. because these things are doing ridiculous stuff in low light, and the images are great. 
So, you know, at, at the end of the day, when people get into all these debates about, well, you know, a full-frame sensor, there's more space between the pixels so it can collect more light. It's like, oh, stop. Just stop. Like, look, if that's why you got into photography, if you're like engineering mindset, then I totally respect that good for you. But for the average photographer that got into it to photograph a specific topic or for the sake of creativity, it's like, ignore that. So just ignore it. Simply yeah, yeah. ignore it and yeah. realize that it's not having an impact. I, you can go look at my entire portfolio. So every image that's currently on my website is shot on micro four thirds. When I became an Olympus ambassador, I willingly removed all of my previous portfolio, my Nikon images, everything. So everything you're seeing there is with a micro four thirds sensor. The images in my portfolio, they will expand full frame on your computer or full screen on your computer. I defy anybody to look at those images and tell me, oh, I can tell right away that's a micro four thirds. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you simply can't. Okay. Uh, um, and, you know, and it, it's, it, I'm proud of that, not because, oh, it's a micro four thirds. I'm proud of that because I've invested the time and the energy in my life to learn photography. Yeah. So you do proper exposure, you make sure your images are in focus, you do the right things you're going to get high quality images yeah. and you can do it with any camera on the market. And I mean, incidentally, you know, the, the thing about, you know, ISOs and sensors getting better and, you know, um, and, and cameras, you know, becoming more um, capable in low light situations, for example, you know, this, this has an impact on, on lots of different things. Like even, you know, for, for people who are starting out, maybe they only have, um, you know, a speed light, for example, you yep. know, you very often hear like, oh, wow, but, you know, I only have a speed light and it's not power, powerful enough. And you're going to go, well, where have you, have you thought about doubling your ISO? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, exactly. <laughs> Guess what happens yeah. then? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just the whole thing. And this is, you yeah. know, so exactly. I mean, you know, we're, we're at a tipping point for uh, the way I see it. We're kind of at a tipping point mm -hmm. evolutionary with, with all of this where photographers really do. I mean, I, I think that you're any photographer that's not willing to kind of start experimenting with the idea that, you know what, I can raise my ISO and I can do yeah. things like that. I, I think they're really handcuffing their creative potential and they're missing, mm -hmm. they're, they're not paying attention to how the cameras are being designed yeah. and, and the yeah. way the cameras are intended to work. And that's not to say that, we, you know, you have to use your camera the way that it's intended. It's a creative tool, mm -hmm. but by not, by kind of holding on to the fears based on old technology, you're cutting yourself off at the knees in terms of realizing the potential mm -hmm. of, of the gear that you're using. And I think that totally. that's unfortunate. Totally agree. You know, incidentally, when I first got into photography, I, um, you know, having been, well, having been a musician, I'm still a musician, but, you know, having been a professional musician at the time, I basically, mm -hmm. I just literally switched from being on stage to shooting what was going on on stage. Yeah. And so I sort of learned um, in the early days, I learned photography in dark and dingy venues and, and concert venues. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, shooting at like ISO 1600, 3200 at, you know, F2.8 or something like that, mm -hmm. that was the norm. And yeah. I remember... I remember thinking, like in the very early days, I remember thinking, like, there's no way you can shoot at F8. It's all going to be black. Who shoots at F8? You can't do that. Of course, it's, you know, when I then emerged out of the darkness and, uh, you know, and started, started taking photographs in like daylight conditions, you know, that, yep. all that changed. But it just goes yep. to show, you know, you just get used to what, um, whatever you're, you're used to. Kay, you were a musician. You were never once out in the daylight. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Uh, that life's in the past. Yeah. Joe, I don't think, um, you know, as you say, many people um, 
are too into their constant constant light right now and i'm mm-hmm. sure quite a number of our listeners aren't either where where would you recommend someone actually starts with constant light who wants to give it a go rather than speed lights um there's there's a couple ways that you can start uh i mean actually you've got a honey badger in front of you that's got a really nice modeling light in it that just for the sake of retraining your brain and convincing yourself what you can do you can work with that because you have it um one of the challenges with you know photography is is of course the gear you know the gear is always cool but that's also really expensive so i'm going to work backwards so right Mm -hmm. now uh, i'm working with stella pro lights and full disclosure i am sponsored by them but I bought my original lights in the Stella Pro line, and their CXL10s are 9,000 lumen lights. They're uh, completely sealed. They're basically the same size as a Godox 8200. Um, They will attach to a Bowens mount, which, by the way, that was important for me because I'll own being lazy. Going from strobes to LEDs, I didn't want to have to work with a panel or a round light. I didn't want to have to rethink the way that I place light, use light, modify light. So Stella Pro was the first brand that really checked that off for me with a lot of power because I can put my Bowens modifiers on them. So the only thing that's changed in my my lighting routine is the lights on all the time. So I'm working at slightly different exposure settings But if I'm looking at a scene and saying, okay, you know, I want to use uh, a 26-inch, you know, softbox, I'm going to use the same 26-inch softbox I was using when I used strobes. And I'm going to place it the same way. I'm going to feather it the same way. All that's going to be the same. So that was really important. And then more recently, Stella Pro just came out um, with uh, the Reflex, which are amazing. They are a hybrid light. They're super tiny. It literally fits in the palm of my hand. Goes up to 9,000 lumens on um, what's called digital burst, 6,000 lumens on continuous, it will do 18,000 full power digital bursts on one battery charge, which is wow. amazing. Uh, and the Reflex S will do up to 20 bursts per second. It is not a strobe. It's a LED chip. So again, you get 6,000 lumens out of it, continuous, and then one button push, you switch into digital burst. And if you're on the S, you can do up to um, 20 frames per second. But the big difference from a strobe, it never overheats. It never misfires. Mm -hmm. So what is happening on the really techie side, so for those of you that are listening or watching that are really hardcore techies, cut me just a little slack if I get any of this slightly not correct, but I I'm confident that I'm going to give you the right gist. Um, Obviously, a strobe, you've got that gaseous burst that happens. So you've got a very quick peak of light that is super, super powerful. Mm -hmm. The way digital burst is working, since it's an LED chip, you don't have as fast a burst. It's actually a longer burst that gives you a more cumulative amount of light. The reason why you get that super fast burst is because of the way the shutter panel drops down, okay, across the sensor. So basically with the longer light, it's covering that whole path of the shutter opening and closing. Basically what it means from a practical shooting standpoint is that you're probably going to have to raise your ISO a stop 
maybe two stops over what you would have done with like a 200 watt second stroke. It's LED. It's not going to compare to a 600 watt second stroke. If you're a photographer that ultimately needs power, strobe is still where the game's at. But for portraiture, for events, um, one of the big benefits with these lights, which I do a couple times a year, I don't do weddings, but I do events that are in big venues where they spent a lot of money, the corporate events, they spent a lot of money and brought in lighting crews where you walk into the room and like the whole room is lit up with LED lights and blues and purples and things like that. Mm. And then the challenge you have is your client spent a lot of money in that lighting. You're using strobes. The strobes, of course, are blowing out that lighting. So you, you have two choices. You're either going to use a ton of strobes and essentially replicate the light, which is a lot of work, or you're going to dial your strobes down as low as possible, but then you're also going to be shooting at really slow shutter speeds so that you're getting white light on your subject in the foreground and then leaving that. And oftentimes you wind up with images that have ghosting. What's great about mirrorless cameras, which are WYSIWYG, and then continuous lighting, even if you need to stop some action, you're working at a much lower power. So you bump your ISO up a stop or two stops, and now everything balances out really super easy, and you can get a shutter speed that's still fast enough to stop that action. But here's the challenge. If you think like you're using a strobe, that's not what you're doing. So you kind of have to rethink the way you make your exposure choices, the way you choose your shutter speeds, the way you choose your ISOs. But ultimately for me, I saw that as a small pain point because now I'm using my mirrorless camera like a mirrorless camera regardless of what kind of lighting I'm using. Everything I'm doing, I'm seeing the image as I shoot it which is great. I never, I never have to second guess myself. I never have to stop and chimp. It's there. I know my exposure is spot on. I'm able to work. I don't care what I'm shooting. For me, I don't want to think about the gear. I want that to be instinctive because I mean, obviously it sounds crazy. How do you not think about your camera, right? I, I don't want to be sitting there fumbling with cameras, trying to make choices, trying to make adjustments, things like that. That needs to be second nature. It's kind of like if you drive a car, you get in the car, you turn the key or you push the button, but you don't sit there and think for a second, wait, how do I drive the car? But yeah, photographers do that all the time. Yeah. Like, right? And, and that's every moment that you're thinking about, well, how should I set this up? Or, or how do I set this up? That's a moment that you're not paying attention to your subject, especially if it's a person. That's just wrong. That's a moment that you're not thinking creatively. That's a moment that you're not, you know, working towards getting that image that you want. So the gear needs to be really fluid for me in terms of my thought process. And that's what really drove me. Once the lights got bright enough, once the sensors got to the point where, yeah, even with micro four thirds, I can shoot at 400 ISO. I can shoot at 800 ISO. I'm not having a problem with that image. You've made me want to go and Try to take some shots of constant light now. Well, <laughs> incidentally, uh, Interfit brought out the, uh, the the Badger Beam, which is uh, an mm -hmm. LED mm -hmm. constant light version of the uh, of the mm -hmm. uh, of the Badger. Which um, we did. I don't think we actually tried it out at the photography show. No, the, I don't think uh, we did in the end. Yeah, uh, even well, I mean, even even the modeling light in the one that you had there. When I was using the Honey Badgers, I actually kind of liked their modeling lights because if I was shooting a YouTube video. You know, what people are seeing in the YouTube video was essentially exactly the same ratios of light that the flash was going to record, but it was bright enough that I was able to get a good video image, you know, doing yep. it as well. But there, I mean, there are other companies for people that are looking for like entry levels, you know, into LEDs. 
Um, certainly, you know, Godox is coming out with some lights now. Uh, Profoto has LEDs. I wouldn't call that entry level, right? But um, you mentioned Interfit's got one. Um, GVM, which is a Chinese company. Um, I've actually tried out a couple of their lights. Now, their lights are kind of bigger in size, so they're not what I would call portable, but they do have Bowens mounts lights that are super quiet, uh, very reasonably priced. So there's, we're still a little bit early in the curve in terms of what gear is available, but not too early. You know, there, there are a lot of companies now that are, are really starting to make inroads with the LEDs and, and, and put stuff out there. For me, Stella Pro, I, I will tell everybody in full, you know, disclosure, it's, it's on the pricier side of, of the, you know, the, the cost aspect of things. But what you're paying for there is you're paying for craftsmanship, you're paying for um, stuff that is waterproof, weather, weather sealed, excuse me, uh, drop proof. In fact, the new reflexes that I've used, I've actually dropped one of them twice, which I'm not proud of, but the best part of it is they're drop tested and they held up just fine. No dings, <laughs> no, dings no dents, no scratches. They're great. Wow. So the advertising's accurate. Um, so, so yes, I mean, they're definitely a higher, higher price light, but you're, you're paying for those convenience elements of the size and, and, and all those yeah. types of things. So we're getting to the point now where just like we've had with flashes for decades, we're starting to get a full range of, of options and choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about it, like you just mentioned, um, you know, trying out LED and, and, and working with LED, essentially you've actually already done that in your career. You just have to, again, change your thought process because everybody, mm-hmm. when they first start, and I, I haven't met, I'll, I won't say nobody's ever done it, but I, I don't know that I've ever met a photographer who started out using strobes. We buy a right. camera and we work with natural light. Yeah. So the bonus with LEDs, you're still working with natural light because you want to use ambient in your scenes most of the time. But even if you're in a studio setting, the bonus is you're creating the light, yep. right? I mean, if you've done any studio work, you know, photographers oftentimes are fearful of studio work. They think, oh my God, lighting, lighting's got to be so hard. And, and I always try to point out to people, it's like, lighting's not hard. In fact, I feel like I'm cheating because in the studio, I'm God. I put the light where I want it, when I want it, how bright I want it. I do whatever I want. So really, it's not that studio lighting is hard. It's just that, yes, you have to learn a little bit of tech. That's the lighting. And you have to really pay attention because since you're God, you're to blame if the light looks bad, right? But (laughs) but if you think about it, outside in natural light, you don't have that control, right? So outside in natural light is where you really are learning to see light and find good light and and that's where and i am known for not being a fan of trends that's where i find it frustrating that so many photographers are this mindset oh yeah i need a 600 watt second strobe so that i can put my subject you know in in the worst light that you could possibly find because i don't know how to look for good light i don't know how to look for good backgrounds and i'll just overpower the sun um and, you know, there are some people that do brilliant work that way. But then there are a lot of what I call zombie photographers who are just following the crowd mindlessly. They're doing bad copies and they're not really advancing their photography. Mm-hmm. They're just doing something that's easy. And it's ultimately boring. So again, you know, everybody has their own reasons for taking pictures. Everybody has their their own why. But for me, it is that exploration. It's what can I do that I haven't done before? Okay. Who can I meet that I haven't met? Um, that's kind of what keeps me moving forward. And I'm definitely, especially at this point, 
if I ever get to the point that that's not fun, that's when I put the camera down. But yeah. that's what drives me. It's it's just that constant exploration. How did you find the, the transition to Olympus? Did you find that uh, came with any problems or did you, did you embrace that change? No, I totally embraced it. So for me, I mean, I was a Nikon guy for 42 years. Um, and, and, you know, I, I kind of just went along with the crowd, when, especially once digital stuff came out. I, I switched to digital right away. Loved everything about the potential for it. Um, was glad to get out of the darkroom, all that stuff. Um, I was frustrated with a couple things with Nikon. Obviously, cameras were getting bigger and heavier. And even with the mirrorless, Nikon, Canon, Sony, cameras are still getting kind of crazy big in their lenses. Like, what's up with six-pound lenses? Anyway, um, I was getting to the point where it was kind of like, why am I lugging all this ridiculous heavy gear? And I realized, you know, kind of like you talked about your daughter, you know, it's like, how come you don't take your camera to the camera club? I realized that I was only picking up my Nikon cameras when I was making money. Otherwise, I took pictures with one of these. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that's really kind of stupid. And so um, I was starting YouTube stuff. I was using Panasonic GH4s and then the GH5 for my videos mm -hmm. and had not tried them for stills at all. But I was reading a couple articles, people saying, oh, you know, these are actually really good for stills. And so when my GH5 came, I decided, you know what, before I get it set up for doing video on that, let me, let me go shoot some stills and, and see what this is all about. So I just went out in a park and just shot a bunch of random stuff and came home, downloaded it and brought it up into Adobe Bridge. And I was like, okay, why don't people like this? Like, this stuff looks really pretty good. So then I did a little more research and then it became the dilemma of everything you read. is like, well, if you want video, you go Panasonic. If you want stills, you go Olympus. It's like, okay. So I decided to rent uh, an Olympus, uh, an EM1 Mark II and uh, a lens and I had it for like three days and played around with it and had a blast. Super light, super easy to use. Uh, shot a bunch of pictures of my grandson. It was great. And then I shipped it back and then I realized I was really stupid because <laughs> I had fun with it for three days, but now I'm like, oh wait, I wonder if it does this. I wonder, I wonder if it does that. I wonder how, and I was like, idiot, you should have had a plan, you know? So, so I rented it again. <laughs> And this time, like, I had a plan. I, I had scheduled a studio shoot. And, like, I had all these things that I wanted to make sure. Like, am I going to be able to tether properly with it? Can I do this? Can I do that? You know? And so I put it through the, really put it through the paces the second time. And it was awesome. And then, um, thanks to a Brit, I was at Photo Plus Expo in New York uh, a couple weeks after the second rental. And I was in the hall early on a Saturday morning. I was walking down the aisle and in this very British accent, this guy yells out my name and I turn around and here's Gavin Hoey running down the aisle to say hi. <laughs> Who else? <laughs> Who else? So he was, he was in the U S for Adorama. And since he was there, Olympus had him speaking at their booth. Yeah. So I was like, I need to, I knew he was an Olympus shooter. I need to talk to you. And so I started asking him a bunch of questions and he answered all my questions. And I kind of hung out at the Olympus booth that day and watched his presentations he introduced me to their marketing people and they're like, you know, they were really anxious. They're like, let us give you a kit to try out. Like, we'll give you a whole kit. You can have it for like two months. I'm like, all right, cool. So they gave me like a camera. They gave me like three lenses and I called them back in two weeks. And here's the other irony. I live 12 minutes from their headquarters. <laughs> uh, I had never considered the brand. Um, so I called them back in like two weeks and said, hey, can I bring it back? And, and the woman who was the PR woman, she was like all disappointed. She's like, are you, you, 
you don't like it? I'm like, no, actually, I just melted a credit card and bought a whole system. <laughs> like, and she's like, oh, you should tell me because like we'd give you a discount. I was like, well, I'll take the discount on some other stuff. But so, yeah, so I, I bought my kit and I, you know, I bought into the system hook, line and sinker. I love it. Um, for me, it just checks off all the boxes at this point. I, I mean, it's not the right gear for everybody. Uh, I've never been that kind of an ambassador. I don't approach it that way. Um, when Olympus asked me about being an ambassador, I told him, I said, here's what I know I can do for you. I can make people curious about your cameras. I'm not going to sell the cameras because that's mm. not the way that I teach. That's not what I do. But I'll make people curious because I can show people what you can do with those cameras. Um, and I can show people that you can do anything you can do with any other cameras, right? So at the end of the day, it's kind of like buying a car, right? It's got to have the features that you want. It's got to have the right feel. It's got to be in the price range you want. You know, everybody's got their reasons. And it's cool. If you want to shoot Sony, shoot Sony. If you want to shoot Pentax, shoot Pentax. A lot of people will make jokes at your expense, but shoot Pentax. Like, so whatever, <laughs> <the> right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, so, yeah, it's like, that's, for me, I've never been, like, I, look, I like toys, right? I like gear, but I've never been a gear junkie. Um, I'm a very non-technical photographer. I, I, I understand, like, you know, like, if you ask me about the inverse square law, if you ask me to tell you, like, the equation or that, but ask me to demonstrate it to you, give me three hours, and I still won't show you everything I can, can do with the inverse squirrel, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I'm not, like, a super technical photographer. And same with the gear. If it does what I need, yeah. and it, you know, fits my way of working. For me, I don't know about you guys, um, one of the biggest things that, that influenced my decision on buying camera gear, it's ergonomics. Um, you know, I was an icon guy, digital comes out. I buy the first Nikon cause that was the first like pro camera. And then by like 2003, 2004 for like the next 15 years, Canon pretty much just swept the floor with Nikon, like just walked all over them. You know, at, that's when you started seeing all the white lenses show up at sporting events and everything. Hmm. I don't like the ergonomics of Canon cameras. Canon cameras are great, but I, I just do not like the way they feel in my hands. So I stuck with Nikon all that time. And then when this idea of going to a smaller camera came up, I didn't think it was even possible. But literally the ergonomics on Olympus cameras, they're kind of honestly like mini Nikons. They're, for me, they're just perfectly laid out. And so that that's honestly one of the biggest things for me. You, you can't buy a bad camera today. There is no such thing. I think there's a lot of we were, we were very impressed actually totally with Olympus. Right. Um, we we had a chance to meet up with the guys um, at the uh, photography show mm -hmm. um, last yep. month, <clears throat> which was great. Yep. It's the first you know trade show in the UK for, for two yeah. years. I think you know, <laughs> and so that was a great great opportunity for us to go and uh, and talk to lots of people. Um, yeah. And yeah, we had a good time at Olympus, huh? It was so, great. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Great family yeah. type atmosphere there. So um, oh, well, especially your your UK Olympus team. They're a group of characters. There's some fun people. Yeah, we're hoping to get them on at some point as well. Yes, actually, so uh, yeah, yeah. So we, we spoke to the two Claire's, so um, hopefully we'll yes. get them on. There you go. Um, yeah. You know, in, in the not too distant future. So that's, uh, mm. that was good fun. It was actually cool. it was a really good time, you know, getting out for the first time, like in, in you know, in, in two years. Yeah. And uh, just, just hanging out. I think it, that was probably the, the funnest part of it. Yeah, was really just to hang out for hang a out. few days. Meet oh, absolutely. People that we've interviewed on, on the show um, yep. and meet them in person. Oh, yeah. speaking of which, it's probably about that time to say, hey, Tommy. Yeah. It's been... <laughs> hey, Tommy, are you listening to this in the car? If you are, make sure you're listening to the audio version and not the video, please, in the car, because that's no, 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 cool. 
But when you get home, go and watch the YouTube version, please. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Tommy done for this episode. Well, there, we go. there you go. Need to mention every so often. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, the photography show was, uh, you know, it is now, of course, um, I think it's now the, the biggest um, trade show in Europe. Now since, Germany should yeah. Since the demise of uh, Photokina. Photokina, oh, yeah. Yeah, I hope to make I hope to make it for that one one day. Our um, so our big one is Photo Plus, which um, was canceled again this year, right. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, they did hold uh, in person WPPI this year, which is the Wedding and Portrait Show that happens in Vegas. Mm. Uh, so they had that one, and my understand I didn't go. My understanding was it was a really scaled down show, but it looks like for us next year we'll have them all. Um, we have three big ones. So there's the Photo Plus, which is the biggest. That's in New York. WPPI, which happens in Las Vegas. And then uh, there's a show every January, which usually floats around the South. Uh, it's put on by Professional Photographers of America, PPA. It's called Imaging USA. Oh, yeah. So next year, that one's actually in Washington, D.C. And that's definitely happy. So I'll, I'll be speaking at that one. Uh, so I'm looking forward to kind of, you know, getting back. I like the trade shows, like you said. One, it's just really it's catching up with people more than anything. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest things about being an ambassador for these companies and doing the teaching is just all the people that I've had access to in the industry. It's just incredible. But mm. um, I I do trade shows a little different than most people. So when it comes to the gear and all that kind of stuff, I always leave the credit cards at home because otherwise I'd be broke when I left the trade <laughs> show. Wise <But> decision. <laughs> I, I go through the trade show floor and a lot of times the vendors, especially if they don't know who I am, probably are thinking like I'm about to steal something because I go through the floor and I'm usually like looking like on the tables behind them. I'm looking on the floor. I'm always looking for those little tiny pieces of gear and gadgets that it may not even be theirs that they sell, but they use it as part of their setup for that because like I, i'm a like i'm a total grip gear nerd anytime i can find a piece of grip that's going to make something easier for me or save me time i'm like oh my god so you know how like women have purse problems i have a grip problem not gonna, no. grips and bags way too many but so i do i i go through trade shows looking for those little things that are not necessarily what the companies are trying to promote they may even be using that piece of grip in a in a display that mm. they're doing but it's like that's a game changer for me. Um, yeah. Tether Tool sells a gadget called the Tether Block, which you run your tether cable underneath your camera, and you literally can just like you know pull on that cable, but it's not going to pull it out of the port and damage the port. Um, that was originally designed by a photographer. His name's uh, David Bladdle. He's in California. I found him at WPPI. He was he had worked out a deal. He just called up a camera store that we have out on the West Coast called Sammy's. He had just called them up and said, hey, can I come to WPPI and, and I'll sit in a little stool in your booth and see if we can sell some of these, right? And he's this little guy and he's sitting in the corner of their booth and I'm walking by and he had this, he had a bright blue one and it just caught my eye and I'm like, what is that? You know, and he starts telling me and I'm like, where have you been for the last like 10 years? Cause I've damaged, you know, data ports and cameras because cables pull out and that kind of stuff. And it's like, this thing's amazing. So yeah, I, I go through looking for like crazy little gadgets, grip pieces, things like that. Um, big purchases. I, I've learned the hard way. Don't make those purchases at a trade show when it looks really cool. And there's all, this, yeah. yeah, no, that's the wrong time. 
We managed uh, to buy nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, but we were so busy. Um, yeah. You know, putting the episode together at the time. So, yeah. but it was, it was good fun. I mean, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, just like uh, you just mentioned um, with, uh, I think, with WPPI, you know, the um, this year's photography show was scaled down. It was a little mm -hmm. bit smaller. Um, it was more spacious. It allowed more space for people, yeah. you know, because of... Um, Right. Although I mean, social distancing is a big word for what's going on at a at a trade show, yeah. you know. But uh, but there was more space, and so yep. um, you know, some people some people have said, "Well, it's not like it was in in previous years." That's true, but right. the great advantage there was that what I found was that people have more time to talk. Yep. You know, everybody had more time. It wasn't like you know, even if you just want to like get your hands on you know the latest Nikon camera or the latest Canon or whatever, you weren't mm -hmm. standing like 10 people deep waiting right. to get to the counter. You know, it's, it was actually, you know, people had time to just have a conversation. Um, and I found that that was, that was actually really pleasant. Yeah. It yeah. was fantastic. Wasn't it? Yeah. You know, it was a much more personable, um, experience yeah. to the point where I, 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 I kind of hope it stays that way. Yeah. Know? I mean, they've, they've moved it, uh, obviously they moved it from March, or April, whenever it's mm -hmm. normally, normally is uh, to September. September. And I think that it's going to stay in September for at least for the next year mm -hmm. or two. Right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if you find yourself with nothing much to do in September next year, you know, make sure you hop yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I definitely would love to make it to the show. I've heard a lot about it. Now, um, I know that you've, you've been involved for a long time in, um, you know, working with models and mm -hmm. creating, you know, guidance for models. Um, yep. You know, you've, you've talked about, you know, modeling scams, for example, and, sure. you know, how, how to, you know, you give an advice on, uh, for models and how to put the portfolios together and so on and so forth. How did you first get involved in that um, side <laughs> of education? Um, met a woman at a party. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so, um, I was doing food photography um, and I met a woman at a Chamber of Commerce event and she found out I was a photographer and got all excited. She's like, have you ever done any fashion photography? I am desperately in need of a photographer. Soon. And when I was younger, I kind of had this policy of being too stupid to ever say no to anything. So I was like, hey, yeah, sure. And so she hired a couple models out in New York and she rented this old conservatory building that had these, you know, cool wooden floors and these really neat arch windows. And keep in mind, this was in the mid 1980s. So she designed uh, fashion designer dancewear. Uh, so this was like the time of the movie, like Flashdance. The name of her company was Leotardo da Vinci. Um, wow. So <laughs> she, uh, she scheduled this shoot, put it all together, and I showed up. We spent two days on a weekend, and I realized I had no clue what the hell I was doing. Um, fortunately, the models were amazing. She was incredibly creative and had a really clear vision of what she wanted. And the stuff turned out great. And I was like, man, that was fun. Like, I got to work with these, like, absolutely gorgeous women. And I created all this stuff. So I just started doing more of it. And then that kind of became everything that I was doing. And the challenge was I was two and a half hours from New York, where I was located at the time. Not in a position where I could really move to New York. And if you were going to do kind of fashion at a high end, it was New York. So... The alternative that was more practical for me was to actually start serving the models and building out portfolios and doing that kind of stuff. And since I had kind of come into fashion from doing commercial advertising, 
I actually kind of sucked at fashion, honestly, because fashion's about, number one, about the clothes, obviously. And, it, you know, it's about kind of creating a mood and an attitude. When you look at a fashion picture, they're not necessarily actually showing you the clothes. There's a language that goes on within the picture. It's no different. You've all watched like a runway show on television and probably thought to yourself, like, who the hell would wear that? And where the hell would you wear that? <laughs> right? Well, it's not that they expect you to wear that. When you see design, and not every designer does that, but when the designers do that, the buyers that are at that show from the department stores and that, they understand the language. The language is, these are the materials that we're using. These are the colors that we're using. We're using wide lapels this year instead of thin lapels. The belts, they're going to be big and flashy, okay? The pants are going to be really skin tight, not baggy and loose. So it's the elements of these ridiculous outfits that you're seeing that the buyers understand. And then after the fashion show, you know, they go backstage and the designer goes along with their assistants and they meet with each of the different buyers. And, you know, um, one store is going to say, oh, we want the jackets and we want the pants and we'll just take a couple dresses. The other store is going to say, my God, those gowns, they're incredible. We want the gowns. And then a couple days later, the designer is going to send the sketches over to the buyers and the buyers are going to place the actual orders for, you know, what they're getting. So... For me, the problem I had was, honestly, if I'm, and I was much younger, but if I'm being honest, these women were beautiful. So for me, I'm looking at them, like, I don't want them looking away. I don't want them looking awkward. They're too pretty. I want to photograph them. So I really wasn't very good at fashion because, I, like, I just always, I wanted the girl. Like, I wanted the face. I wanted her staring down the barrel of the lens because that was, like, every guy's fantasy, you know, in that sense. So I realized I could, I could serve the models just as well. So I got to do that kind of work, but I wasn't stuck in the rat race of, you know, New York and, and the high fashion world. So I started shooting modeling portfolios and I kind of quickly realized that even though I was doing very honest work and I was delivering good quality, it was almost morally kind of like a scam in the sense that I was doing these shoots for women. They were very pretty, but for various reasons, didn't stand a chance in hell of ever becoming a professional model with a modeling agency. It may simply be because of their lifestyle already really kind of just doesn't actually give them the time to do it properly. Or um, it could be just they have really unrealistic expectations. Uh, it could be that while they're very pretty, they don't have the features that modeling agencies are actually going to sign. So, you know, it was kind of like this is it right of me to take their money, even though I'm giving them everything I promised and I'm giving them really good pictures and they're having a blast. So it, it part of kind of coming to terms with that, that's when I started writing the articles and, and that, um, and I actually used to have a website called the business of modeling, which I sold a bunch of years back and then started rewriting new articles. But um, I started kind of advising people and, and my, my goal was, especially as the internet was evolving, my goal was to try and at least just educate mostly young women, but also young men, that there's really kind of two sides to the modeling. I hate to say modeling industry, but there's really kind of two sides to modeling. There's the professional side, which goes through modeling agencies, and those are the women that you're going to see in ads and on billboards and in magazines. And then there's kind of the amateur for fun side. And the problem is, it turned out to be the wrong analogy, because the minute you give somebody a choice between professional and amateur, they automatically dig in a i got to get that professional thing. I've got to accomplish that. Um, and, and unfortunately, when it comes to modeling, it's never about the girl. 
right? Or the guy, but nobody cares about the model. The model, you know, their job essentially is to be an actor or actress. It's, it's to take on this character, be this persona and help sell a product. So it doesn't matter what they like. It doesn't matter how they like to dress, how they like their hair, how they wear their makeup. It's sell the product. So as the amateur world of modeling matured a little bit, because at first it was really kind of honestly a very dark place thanks to the internet. Um, but as some of the sites like Purpleport in Europe, uh, which, you know, here we have an American equivalent that's called Model Mayhem. Um, they, they have people that love them, people that hate them, but at least they grew up to the point where there was enough community and kind of standards that there was also a little bit of education behind it in terms of how to not get yourself in trouble, you know, on those sites. Um, what did develop is a community of young men and young women and photographers. And when I say photographers, I mean people with cameras that were really dedicated to just creating and having fun. And these were some crazy talented people. Like, you know, if you actually go through those amateur modeling websites or, you know, just going through Instagram, let's face it, right? Not everybody that's on Instagram is a professional photographer, but man, look at the talent that is there, right? And I don't just mean the people taking the pictures, but I mean the people in the pictures, right? That are, you know, creating their own outfits and doing this stuff. The, the talent, it's like, I hate some of these people because I can't, I can't see the world that way. I wish I could, right? Um, so I just thought, all right, look, I can, I can fill a gap here and I can at least, you know, try to open people's eyes to say, look, you have choices. And, and again, what I said before, I say the same thing to photographers. It's, it's understand your why. Why is it you really want to model, right? Is it really about, you know, being a professional? Because in that case, unfortunately, part of the success as a professional model, you have to win a genetic lottery, Right. It, you know, if you're 5'4", no fashion designer is going to want to work with you, period. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And it just is what it is. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or otherwise. So I'm just the messenger, right? But um, you're not likely to beat those odds, right? But if you're 5'4", you could definitely do commercial modeling. You could definitely get into acting. And if you're really still determined to be able to say, I was in a magazine... There are some paths that you can take to accomplish that, but it's not like you're going to be doing it two, three times a month. It's just not going to happen, right? But if you're okay doing it for fun, and if you're willing to put some effort into it, God, you could be doing photo shoots five days a week and having a blast, right? Because you're not only creating all these really cool pictures, but you're working with people that are creative and you're collaborating, Um so that's kind of the the whole point behind the articles and trying to kind of get people focused on really what it takes. And that's how it all evolved. It was really just seeing a need. And, you know, when I would meet models that would contact me about shooting modeling portfolios, I would always ask questions like, well, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? And just realize, like, they've done no research. They have no clue. And they're willing to throw away a ton of money. I mean, I was very fortunate. I developed a business where I had people traveling from all over the U.S. to shoot modeling portfolios with me because I didn't just take pictures and give them pictures back. I mean, I had women that would come from L.A. And their photographers a whole lot better than me in L.A. They didn't need me. But what I was doing was basically helping them craft a marketing plan so that once they got the pictures, they understood these are the steps you're going to take and this is how you're going to get signed by an agency. And when you go meet with an agency, these are the things you're going to say. These are the things you're not going to say. This is how you're going to dress. So I was basically giving them a whole roadmap. And 
I had a great success rate. If they followed the outline that I gave them, they got signed. They weren't famous. They didn't become supermodels because they probably weren't going to in the first place. But I, I taught people to, at least if you're going to do that, approach it like a business, which means you're going to have to make an investment. That's that portfolio. And there's going to be some other things. So you need to be looking at it. How do I get that money back? And the best part is, is if you get that money back, you can say that you're an agency model because that means you've gotten signed and, and you've gotten a job. So that was kind of the whole focus. And that's where the articles came from, which is filling a need because unfortunately a lot of a lot of modeling scams aren't scams meaning they're morally kind of a scam in other words they're hmm. they're not really fair but from a legal standpoint the company is actually being very upfront about what you get for what you pay for but they communicate it just obtusely enough that people tend to fill in the blanks with their own dreams and their own goals mm -hmm. and set different expectations than what the company is actually telling you. So I know I'm not saying by any means that makes it okay, because it's not. But so a, a lot of things that get lift, you know, written off as, oh, it's a modeling scam. No, actually, they were very honest about what they were going to do for you and what you were going to get. You just chose to fill in the blanks. And, and expect something else because you haven't done any research on how the business really works. Like, uh, and I'm sure they do them in the UK. You'll have these businesses that all advertise like you know, on a Saturday, they're doing kind of this big event where they're going to have the top casting agencies from, you know, all the big agencies in London and they're going to be there and the whole bit. And you can come and you can pay, you know, a couple hundred pounds and, you know, you'll get to meet all of these people. Well, that's awesome. And that everything that they said is going to happen. But, if you're 5'3", and you think that the top fashion agency in London, or like Ford models who may be there, is going to sign you, you're nuts. Because they're not. And all you have to do is go to that modeling agency's website and look at their height requirements for their models. Sure, They're very honest on their website. You know, you got to be 5'10", 5'11", or maybe 5'8", and we can get you some commercial work. But that's the requirements for Ford models. So if you think you're going to go to this event and Ford models is going to be like, oh, my God, no, that's not going to happen. So the people that are running the event, they're they're delivering everything they promised. But what they're not doing is saying, oh, you're five, three. You shouldn't come. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, they're opening. The, so that's you, that's where you have to question. Is this scam? Oh, not really, but mm -hmm. kind of. So so that's how I started. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, there's, there's also a lot of, um, a lot of really good information in, in your articles about, uh, you know, for instance, child models or baby models. And, you know, mm -hmm. especially when you're mm -hmm. a parent, um, that is, this, you know, could yep. potentially be an, an absolute minefield. Um, oh, mainly because gotcha. most parents just don't know anything about the modeling world and, you know, what well, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, it's the reality of being a parent, right? It, it's one, not knowing and two, thinking that your child is, you know, the most amazing thing ever, which is exactly <laughs> what you should think. But, sure. <laughs> you know, there's that finding that balance and being grounded. And, and most people look at modeling. Um, and honestly, I've seen people do this at all ages. So it's not even a young thing. But obviously, you look at it from the inside out, meaning, well, I see this stuff in magazines and I'd love to do it. I see this stuff on television. I love to do it. What they never do, and I get it, is they never look at it from the other side. Well, okay, there's these models. Who paid them? 
Why are they there in the first place? How do they get hired? Right? What does a business want? What are the requirements? They, they don't look at it from the other side. And so, you know, when we talk about those professional models, they would not exist. There would be no professional models through agencies if it were not for advertisers. Why do advertisers want a model? They want to help sell a product because they're a business and they need to market their wares. So the whole transaction of hiring the model, photographing the model, all that, it ain't about the model. It's about selling that product because that company wants to make a profit. Over on the amateur side, it's all about being creative. It's all about collaborating, right? But but then you don't have that status of being to say, well, I'm signed by Ford Models. So that that's where, unfortunately, it becomes this tug of war with a lot. And look, I get it. I totally get it. But, you know, that's the, the challenge is I, I've watched many, many people who are incredibly talented, absolutely beautiful, really creative, but essentially they torture themselves and everybody they come in contact with just because they're determined to be able to say, I was a professional model. And they, they're miserable the entire time because they have all this creativity. They have this great fashion sense and everything. And then if they do get into an agency and they get a job, they're likely hired to like wear a pair of scrubs and pretend they're a nurse which is not what they were thinking when they said, hey, I want to be a model. Like, you know, one of the things I always used to talk about, so my the big market closest to me is Philadelphia. I'm like right in the middle of Philly and New York, but I'm closer to Philly. So if I was shooting a modeling portfolio for a girl that was going to submit to agencies in Philadelphia, it's not a fashion market, it is a commercial advertising market. So if, and what I used to do when people would travel, I would figure out whatever the closest city is to them, big city, and I would go and look up the Chamber of Commerce, which is basically uh, an organization that represents businesses in that area. And on every Chamber of Commerce website anywhere, they brag incessantly about all the businesses that are headquartered there. So those businesses that are headquartered in that city, those are the potential clients for hiring these agency models. So that tells me, you know, I can go and look at those websites, their websites and say, okay, these are the kinds of things they hire models. So Philadelphia, Philadelphia, it's, you know, corporate, it's middle-aged. Uh, in terms of where the money is at. And it is um, the largest medical advertising market in the United States because we have three of the major pharmaceutical companies that are headquartered in the Philadelphia area. Mm. I, I think 17 major hospital networks, uh, tons of research institutions. So in Philadelphia, in a model's portfolio, it's 10 times more important to have a picture as like a nurse or a doctor or a research assistant than it is to have a picture like in a bikini. But every girl wants to do the bikini picture, but nobody's coming to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is landlocked to shoot swimwear, right? So it's like, you know, it's so it, the whole thing with the modeling portfolio, and that's where I kind of established myself. It was making portfolios that were geared towards the clients. And I, and I will tell you with pride, Every agency in Philadelphia, since I, most of the models I worked with, of course, went into Philly, they hated my portfolios. But they loved me because my models got more work than anybody else. They hated my portfolios because every girl that came in with a gelatin portfolio, they knew exactly what pictures were going to be in there. And they knew exactly how I was going to shoot them. And I did the same thing over and over and over again. Because think about this. Girl comes into a modeling agency, or better yet, goes to a casting, and they're looking, they're looking for that person that looks like a nurse, right? 
So we all know advertising is expensive, even if it's like just going to be a billboard. Like, because in Philadelphia, you drive down the highways and there'll be billboards for the hospital networks and that, and they're not real nurses. They're models. So the billboards alone are expensive. The photography is expensive. The design is expensive. It's expensive. So you would think that these people, since their job is to decide on who the model is going to be and put the billboard together, that they could look at a girl that comes in in a pair of jeans and a nice shirt and her hair's down and the whole bit. You'd think that they could look at her and say, yeah, you know, she's the right age and we could put her hair in a ponytail. She'd be perfect as a nurse. But with all that money in the line, they'd rather have the girl come in in the jeans and the shirt with her hair down. But when they open up her portfolio, oh yeah, she's gorgeous. Oh wow, she's really sexy. My God, that's the nurse. That's exactly what we wanted the billboard. Boom, because what they do is they pick out their phone, they take a quick snapshot of that, text it to the boss, and the boss is like, yep. And if you've ever worked in the corporate world, you know everything in corporate is CYA, cover your ass. Now the boss mm -hmm. signed off, the girl's perfect, everybody's happy, right? So there was actually a tremendous amount of logic that says every modeling, especially in a commercial advertising market, every modeling portfolio actually should have exactly the same pictures. They don't do that. Agencies hate that only because it's boring. They'd rather have all the creative, cool pictures. But clients appreciated the fact that if they're looking for a college kid, Philadelphia has a huge um, uh, amount of colleges because one of the original colonies, there's tons of, of colleges in the Philadelphia area. And you'd think they just use their students. Sometimes they do, but more often than not, they actually hire models for their advertising and for their billboards. So they'd much rather see a picture that shows that person as a college student. So they're like, yeah, it's like, that's our ideal co-ed right there. Boom. And those people would get work. They would get hired. And so I would do the same thing with every market and just research the market. It'd take me all of 15 minutes, you know, go through the Chamber of Commerce website. And then that way I could skew the portfolio towards them. And I found locations locally. Like my wife is a college professor. She, she teaches at a small liberal arts school nearby and it's a campus that, it's an old campus, but it's also got some very modern buildings. So the nice part of it is, depending on where the model's from, if she's from, you know, East Coast, maybe New England, there are buildings that actually look like Ivy League school buildings. So it could mm -hmm. be like Harvard. And if the girl happens to be from like LA, there are brand new buildings that are all like metal and glass, right? So, you know, obviously I, if I took the model outside and she's from LA, I would have to pay close attention like not put her in front of evergreen trees because they don't have evergreen trees in LA. So, you know, I'd be very careful with my locations, but I make sure that when she go back and she'd show the portfolio, nobody's going to pick out. It's like, where did you shoot this? Right. It, it's going to look like it was, was done there because as much as you want the locations, the picture is not about the location. So you only want to give a hint in the location. It's, it's the girl that you're selling and her ability to be that character in the ad. So Nick, I've got a plan. I'm not dressing up as a nurse for you. <laughs> well, but it's, it's better than that. So we're in Windsor, right? So we're in Windsor. I'm not dressing up as the queen. Either. Well, if we want to get into professional modeling, my friends, we're going to have to dress up as a queen. That's, that's what's happening right here. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Charles, go. maybe. Oh, no, really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but, talking about a queen, actually, I know that you once shot the queen. No, I mean, Wait, hang the on. Queen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I did actually in Philadelphia, I was 16 years old and I almost got shot doing it. Um, so, you know, keep in mind back in the seventies, security was not the kind of concern that it was like today. Mm. 
1976, she visited uh, Philadelphia for the bicentennial um, here in the United States. And she, um, they sailed up the Delaware River uh, on Britannia. Um, they um, docked it. And I had gone to a spot called Penn's Landing, which is where they docked it and tried to get pictures. But we were like a football field away across a, a parking lot. So you could see, but it's miles away. And Longest lens I had at that point, I was 16 years old. I had a 200 millimeter lens, so that wasn't doing anything for me. So um, they had published her itinerary, which of course is also something that doesn't get done today. But um, I knew from there she was going to go and dedicate a replica of the Liberty Bell at a new visitor center that they had built that was about three blocks from Independence Hall, which is, of course, the mm -hmm. prime tourist attraction in Philadelphia. So uh, I went to the visitor center and I got there well ahead of her. She was going to lunch before she got there. And the media stand was set up for the photographers across, across a small street from the podium where she was going to talk. And there was no security, nothing. So I was like, this is perfect. So I get up on this platform and I self set myself up thinking that I'm going to be able to blend in. Mind you, I'm 16 years old. But... Um, <laughs> As time goes by, other photographers start showing up, and I just make it a point. I'm talking to these people. Then security starts showing up. It's the police. Then some Secret Service people showed up, and the crowds are building and a whole bit. And probably just five minutes before she was about to start her speech, the Secret Service came through, and they did a credentials sweep where they you know, looked for everybody's credentials. I had no credentials. So, of course, I got booted. So at this point, there's thousands of people and, and this is a fairly tight area, but it was published. She was going to walk from there through this colonial historical area to Independence Hall. So when I got booted, the guy kind of dumped me in the middle of the street, not in the crowd. So I kind of had to walk the path she was going to go down. And as I got to Independence Hall, the back of Independence Hall, there's a set of steps that she was going to go up. And literally at the top of the steps was this big bush. And there's people everywhere. There was like nowhere for me to go. So I got to the top of the steps. And I thought, all right, climb under the bush. Because there's a wall and I'd be right above her. So I'd be able to get shots of her coming. So I thought this was a brilliant idea. So I did that. And I literally laid under this bush for the best part of an hour. And as <laughs> she's finally coming along, there were three nuns who were apparently from Great Britain that were standing at the, at the bottom of the steps, so right underneath the wall that I'm on. Um, my mistake, which almost got me hurt, was I stayed under the bush until the very last minute because I was afraid if they see me, they'll pull me out. So she's coming along. She's with a, um, a guy from the, uh, the park service who's wearing a ranger outfit. and He's like her tour guide, and she's walking along. And these nuns are calling to her and she sees them and she walks right over towards them. So, of course, I'm like, yes, like, I've got a 24 millimeter on my camera. I'm right above the nuns. She's walking over. Well, what once she gets to the nuns, I'm figuring, OK, cool now. So I like hop out from underneath the bush and I'm right on the corner of this wall, <laughs> right above the nuns, right above the queen. <laughs> Okay. And I could hear the guns clicking as like <laughs> I, look, I look up and there's security people like all around, like with guns in their hands. I'm like, oh God. And so I'm like, camera, camera, <laughs> right? 
but they couldn't get to me because the crowd had filled in. Hmm. So I like slowly went back to taking pictures. Nobody ever said a word because, you know, they had to keep following her and there were so many people me. So it's not like it was some award-winning picture, but yes, I, I got very close to the queen. I got one other picture over that day, uh, her and Philip getting out of a, a limousine and like waving. Um, that shot, I, rem I remember specifically, it was in a really, really shaded area. So it was a really grainy image because, you know, it was film days and that. Hmm. But uh, I, I used to do a lot of stuff. But I did that with Diana. I got the photograph Diana in London mm -hmm. at a hospital um, the week that they dedicated... The, so this is in the 80s. It was the week that they dedicated the statue for Lord Mountbatten, who, of course, was right. killed by the IRA. Um, all the headlines all week, all the newspapers. First time all the royals have been together since the bombing in London. Mm -hmm. Tightest security ever. So... Which bush were you under this time? <laughs> No, well, no, this was even dumber. I'm not kidding, but I'm really proud of this story because, man, this was totally like going out on a limb. Oh. I had heard that if you, this is pre-internet, right? I had heard that if you contacted Buckingham Palace and asked for the press office, that they would send you a copy of the schedule for the Royals. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So the day I arrived in town, I was staying with my aunt. Um, and we, my wife at the time was with me and we had my two-year-old son. We were taking him to meet the relatives for the first time in London. Um, so I get the phone book out. Buckingham Palace is in the phone book. I call and they answer and I ask for the press office and they put me through. And so I was like, hi, I'm a newspaper photographer from the United States. I'm here in London and my paper has asked me to try and get some images of the Royal, specifically Diana while I'm here. Am I able to get a copy of their schedule to find out where I can see them? And at this point, this was the day I arrived. So I didn't even know about the whole statue and Lord Mountbatten and any of that stuff yet, right? I hadn't mm -hmm. seen any of the headlines. So they're like, sure, what's your address? So I give them the address where I'm staying. They're like, okay. And the woman hangs up. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll get something. Maybe I won't, probably in a couple of days. The next morning, my aunt goes out and there's a letter on the doorstep, right? And it's from the press office at Buckingham Palace with my name on it. She's like, how did you get this, right? I open it up <laughs> and it's like this six page document with everything the entire royal family is doing for the week. Wow. So it's like, okay, cool. So I'm going through it, and Diana was going to dedicate a wing of a, a children's wing of a hospital. I don't remember the name of the hospital. It was somewhere in the West End. Um, so being an American and being stupid, I'm like, oh, hospital. Hospital's here. You just drive up. It's right there. I wasn't thinking that it would be a hospital on grounds behind big bushes and wrought iron fences, right? So <laughs> my wife and I, we get in the tube, we go, come out of the tube, and there's already people lying in the streets, right? And I'm thinking, wow, a lot of people, I'm going to have to really try and work my way forward. And I walk around the corner and I realize the hospital's like 50 yards up that hill behind this big fence. And there's, of course, there's bobbies at the gate. And I'm like, oh my God. So as we're standing there, a couple of photographers come walking up from the other side and looked like that. Honestly, it looked like they walked right in the gate. I couldn't see credentials, anything, but that was like, they were like 50 feet away. So my wife at the time challenged me. She's like, oh, you, you got to go see if you can get in. I'm like, no, it's like, because by that time we had seen the newspapers with the headlines. I'm like, I'm not going to get in trouble. She's like, no, come on, go do it. You're being a wimp. Go do it. So I was like, all right, that's it. You can't dare me. So I didn't have a full kit of gear, but I had a camera bag. I had, I had two bodies and a couple lenses. So 
I took as much gear out of my bag as possible as I could and wore it. So I was in like full newspaper photographer mode and walked down the middle of the street, left her on the street, walked down the middle of the street. As I'm getting to the gate, there's another photographer coming along, two photographers coming along from the other way. So I'm like, perfect. I just got to time it so I can walk in with them. I get there, perfect timing. They turn, they go in. I go to step through the gate and the Bobby steps right in front of me. He's like, you have a ticket? I'm like, ticket? And I didn't see them. I'm like, they didn't show anything. They weren't wearing anything. So, so I'm like, uh, no, I didn't know I needed a ticket. He's like, you have to have a ticket. So it clicked in, in my camera bag, I had the letter from Buckingham Palace. So I was like, I don't understand. I'm here from the U.S. I figured, okay, play dumb American, right? I'm here from the U.S. <laughs> and I'm supposed to get pictures of Diana. And I contacted the press office at Buckingham Palace. And they sent me this letter. And I'm like, look at the letter, right? You know, it's got the Buckingham Palace logo, you know. And, and he just like shakes his head. He's like, look, I can't help. He's like, you see the guy up the driveway in the raincoat? Go talk to him. So now I'm inside the gate walking up the driveway. So I figure, all right, let's try this again. So I dialed it up a little bit more. I was like, hi, Bobby at the gate told me I need to talk to you. I'm from the U.S. I'm a newspaper photographer. I've been tasked with getting some pictures of Diana while I'm here. I contacted the press office. They sent me this. This is what I got. And now I'm being told I need a ticket. I don't know what the ticket is. He looks at the paper, reads through it, hands it back to me. He's like, I don't know. He's like, but I can't let you in with that. I don't know what to tell you. He's like, you see up there in the press pit where all the photographers are? See the woman in the blue raincoat? She's from the Buckingham Palace press office, at which point I'm figuring, okay, gigs up, right? But he's like, go talk to her. I'm like, okay. So I go the rest <laughs> of the way up the driveway. Now I'm in the press pit. So I get to the woman, and now I'm like, okay, this is working. So I'm like a frantic American. I'm like, I don't understand. I talked to the Bobby. I talked to the guy in the raincoat. He told me I got to talk to you. I contacted your office. I explained I needed to get pictures of Diana. I'm like ranting. She looks at the paper. She's like, yeah, I know what this is, but you need a ticket. And she looks at her watch. She looks down the drama. And she's like, look, she's here. Just don't do anything stupid. And she turns her back on me. <laughs> and so, so I got, she, she pulls up in the car and she gets out. They hand her some flowers and she goes up the steps. I got a really nice shot of her, like at the top of the steps going in. Nothing like, oh my God, amazing. But it was really cool. Hmm. So I'm figuring it's over. Go back out and find your wife. Nobody moves. So it's like, okay, I'm not going to leave. Let's see what's happening. 20, 30 minutes go by. So I'm trying to talk to as many photographers as possible because there's bobbies all over the place. And I could tell there were some other people that I'm pretty sure were playing clothes. Um, after about 25 minutes, everybody starts putting their gear down on the driveway in, inside this little roped off area and walking off. I'm like, okay, when in Rome, do like the Romans do, right? So I put my gear down and I followed. They take us around the corner of the building. There's a tent set up where they fed us tea and crumpets and we had snacks. Oh, <laughs> and, so, and so we're in there. We're in there for about a half an hour and we come back out and then she comes out. And as Diana was known for doing, she came out and they had two little girls there that were supposed to present her flowers. And they had let people with tickets in that were lining the driveway and they were all waving the little Union Jacks and the whole bit. And so she comes out and the people are cheering and she takes the flowers from the little girl and the car's facing um, towards her. So the passenger side door is like right where this press pit is. But after she takes the flowers from the little girl, she hears all the people yelling. She walked over to the crowd. Well, apparently in the UK, at least back then, media etiquette was a lot different than it was here. Because the minute she 
walked past the two little girls instead of walking to the car. She hadn't even gotten to the crowd. All the photographers in the pit just basically jumped over the rope and <laughs> swarmed her. So now she's in the middle of this massive swarm. Her security is having a fit because they can't actually get to her. I'm thinking, all right, don't push and be stupid about that. Stay back. So I've got a wide angle lens, at, you know, a 24 millimeter up that I'm, I'm holding up above the crowd and doing some shots. And then I'm thinking, well, she's still got to get to the car. So I figured I'm not going to get in this mess because the, the police were clearly irritated with what was going on. So I just backed up and I'm waiting by the front of the car. And I don't know if you guys ever got to see her in person, but she, she's one of the few famous people that I had ever met. She was everything in person that she is in her pictures. Like she just was striking and she's incredibly tall. So I'm standing there just like watching her in this crowd and she comes out of the crowd and I completely forgot to be a photographer. And so she literally <laughs> walks up to me and like, excuse me, because she needed to get past me to get to the car door. And I'm just like, oh, sorry. And I got out of the way. And so, yes, that was my Diana experience the week that all the newspapers had the headlines about all the tight security in London. I talked myself into it. And, you know, that yeah, we, I mean, that comes from being a newspaper photographer. Yeah. That's how I started my career was newspapers. And you, as a newspaper photographer, you learn, shoot first, ask questions later, and yeah. you do crazy stuff. So. They're two of the best stories I think I've ever heard. Thank God there was, uh, it was a 24 millimeter and not some kind of nine millimeter that you had. There. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, really. Right. I, I mean, plus in today's world, believe me, you'd be shot and arrested in today's world. So obviously, yeah. you know, back then things were a little bit different. So I was very lucky in, in that sense, but. One of my one of my early idols was uh, a sports photographer named Neil Leifer. Mm. Um, shot for Sports Illustrated, iconic images. Um, he has a lot of great stories as a teenager growing up in the Bronx in New York. He would sneak into Yankee Stadium to photograph the Yankees and that, and literally just like talk his way in and bribe the, the you know the, the security guards because again it, it was a different world back then. Mm. You know, when I was in high school, I called. Um, the Philadelphia Phillies, which is the baseball team in Philadelphia, our school newspaper, the name of the newspaper was the Night Crier because we were the Knights. That was our mascot. I called them and said, hey, I'm the chief photographer from the Night Crier, and we'd really like to come down and do a feature story in the game. I got press credentials to go shoot Major League Baseball like when I was 17 years old in high school. So you could, you could do that then. Unfortunately, it's really not an option in today's world. It would be difficult to get, to get close to the the Royals these days. I mean, oh, we had, um, yeah. oh, for sure. only, I mean, only uh, a couple of months ago, you know, when, uh, when Prince Philip passed away, um, mm -hmm. all the, the, what do you want to call it? The proceedings it wasn't exactly, yep. festivity, but the funeral proceedings were, were taking place. Um, yeah. Yep. yeah. Literally. On my doorstep. Windsor Castle. Yeah. And so the whole place yeah. was locked down with like security and, you know, yeah, the pretty much yeah, the world. If you lived here and you're local, the idea was for a couple of days, you just don't leave your house. You don't yeah. take your cars out. You're <laughs> not going to sure. get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, the place was swarming with, obviously, with police and um, whatever, M MI5 <laughs> and, you know, whatever. I mean, the equivalent of the Secret Service, obviously, and, yep. you know, that kind of jazz. So, so yeah, yeah. That, was, um, that was fun times. Yeah, yeah. the world's <laughs> definitely changed a little bit since then. So it, they're cool yeah. stories because we were lucky enough to be able to do it now. I wouldn't encourage anybody to try those kinds of things. Yeah. So, probably right. would not end well. Frowned upon tactics today, upon. I guess. Yes. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> so, Joe, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. 
It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, the pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me. So um, this is it. We've come to the end of episode 81 of the Camera Shake Podcast. 81. 81. Um, with none other than uh, Joe Edelman. Just remember, um, your best shot is your next shot. I That's always right. wanted to say that. Always wanted yep. to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Very good. Very good. Now, remember, if you have been listening to the audio version of this podcast, you know, be advised that you can not only listen to our solitary voices, but see our pretty faces in full Technicolor over on YouTube. All you have to do is go to youtube.com forward slash camera shake. Um, we would love to see you there. Once you're there, do us a flavor, you know, throw us a solid, hit that like button, uh, ring that bell, do all the good stuff that uh, that YouTubers usually tend to do. We're not really YouTubers. We're podcasters. Yes. We're, we're podtubers. I think that's, that's the way to do There you that. go. Did you just coin any phrase? Uh, that's, you know, always said in the trends. Right here, Chemistry Podcast, you know where it's at. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, that being said, that is it. We are, we've come to the end of episode 81. I'd be lovely to see you next week, next Thursday, as per usual. That's it for us. See week. you later. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for having me. <laughs>